Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is episode 114 of the 411 On Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Joining me tonight is my good friend and fellow reviewer, Kevin Pantoja. Kevin, how are you, my friend? I am fantastic. Uh, enjoyed a good Mother's Day. Um, sat back and watched the pay per view that ended at a very nice nine, like before nine thirty p.m. So just tremendous all around. Hell yeah, dude! You, you cannot argue when the pay per view ends like that. And on top of it, it was not a bad show. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely better than I expected. I was not like thrilled with the card going in, but um, we we're going to talk WWE Money in the Bank twenty twenty, but. Something else that Kevin and I wanted to talk about, um, Kevin and I, obviously, fellow reviewers, something we both have reviewed for a long time and we both have a lot of love for is the NXT product, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And the NXT product, I don't know a great way to put it right now. It's in a really funky phase right now. And I thought we could talk about that a little bit yeah. tonight. And we we reviewed Wednesday's show, and it was really funny coming out of Wednesday's show because <laughs> I, I got my review done, and obviously you get yours done first because I do AEW. Mm-hmm. And I got mine done, and I gave it like a 6 out of 10. I thought it was a solid show, but I guess I found it, the best way to describe it was kind of disappointing because you had the Charlotte EO match and the Cold Dream match advertised. And yeah, we were big sp- deals. Yeah, exactly. It was like kind of mini takeover-ish. Plus, we were going to have more of the cruiserweight tournament, which and is- Gargano Dajakovic. Exactly. I almost forgot about that. Thank you. So <laughs> it's like you were kind of looking at a mini takeover show, and we know the NXT reputation and the fact that like the cruiserweight tournament is, I know something we're both enjoying because there's some mm-hmm. fun guys in there. It's kind of like a. It's our substitute for Best of the Super Juniors this year <laughs> because yeah. we're not getting that. <laughs> Which so, I've missed. <laughs> yeah, so it's like it looked really good on paper. I was really excited. I'm like – and I'm thinking in theory in the back of my head, I'm like, this show, man, this show should deliver. This show has that takeover buzz to it. Should probably have a good week in the ratings. And I try not to look too much into the ratings right now because of the whole pandemic thing. Of course. But I'm just I'm saying, like, in terms of building buzz and momentum, it looked like it was going to be a really good week for NXT. Mm-hmm. I agree. So just some things I wanted to talk about about that show real quick is the first thing that bugged me on this show was the fact that they really fucking boned the Cruiserweight Tournament matches. Now, don't get me wrong. They were not bad. The guys worked really hard. But you can only do so much in three minutes. Yeah, it was really weird. Like, when I watched, uh, I believe the Gallagher match was first. um, And it ended in a three minutes, I think. Let me see. Yeah, Tozawa Gallagher went three and a half minutes. And I was like... Okay, that was weird, but I just thought nothing of it. I said maybe they're a little pressed for time. And then Kushida Atlas also in three minutes, and I was just I was very disappointed. Like there was no need for that to be that short, especially when you consider no offense to the people involved, but you didn't need to do the Chelsea Green Zia Lee match. I mean, I know that was only a minute, but you know, count entrances and you know the post match stuff with Aaliyah. Like you could wrap that up maybe next week or something. You know, get Aaliyah with Robert Stone. The Cameron Grimes thing took, like, I know he beat Denzel 
I can't remember his name, Dejournet, I think. Dejournet, yeah. Okay, yeah, he beat him in like 20 seconds, but then he had the whole post-match thing with Finn Balor, which wasn't really needed because Finn had already established like what he was saying beforehand. I know it set up a match for next week, but again, they've done that with like WWE.com exclusives. Those are several minutes you could have just thrown like two or three minutes to each of those matches, and it would have helped them out. Still wouldn't have been a ton of time, but I they had just some like six-minute sprint that I love out there, but three minutes, there's not much you can do. Just like the only great three-minute match out there is like Omaha Hart 1-2-3 kid at King of the Ring 94. And I think the only other one I would add on to that, I think you'll remember. Do you remember when uh, Hiromu and Kushida did that like 90-second oh, sprint yeah. where, where Hiromu fucking killed him? Was it an uh, invasion attack, I think? It was like the Wrestle Kingdom rematch and Hiromu just like wrecked him, but it yeah. was fantastic. It was like, yeah. Okay, so there's, you know, but it's very rare. And, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. So, so they yeah. got boned hard and it, the value of the tournament plus... I haven't liked, I know we don't talk much about Raw and SmackDown, but I really don't like the tournament guys just jobbing on Raw. Like, you can't get anyone else to do that. Exactly. You have, like, 400 people under contract even after the releases. It's like, come mm-hmm. on now, why is Tozawa doing jobs on Raw? And, like, the, the Tozawa-Gallagher match was, it was okay. Because, again, it wasn't because they didn't try. They worked their asses off in three and a half mm-hmm. minutes. But, I mean, these are two guys. Akira Tozawa is fucking great. Jack Gallagher has had a lot of really good matches for WWE. And I, I just, I don't understand why they didn't get five or six minutes. You know, I'm just sitting there scratching my head about that. Especially when a segment later you have Chelsea Green fucking her finish up again. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like no offense to Chelsea Green. I'm sure she is lovely and I like her a lot. I like her in Impact and everything. But, mm-hmm. I mean, come on, man. You're on national fucking TV. You're supposedly getting the push and... Hit your goddamn move right. There was like five camera cuts in her finish, man. Yeah, it's not it's not going well. The un, uh, the uh, what is it? I'm prettier. Which don't get me wrong, it's a cool name, like a cool play on the unprettier, especially for her character. Um, but you got to be able to finish. Like you got to be able to hit that finisher, and it just it kills any momentum when you you know when it doesn't happen. And like you said, I I enjoyed what I've seen of Chelsea. I really thought she was a lot of fun in TNA uh, with her character. Uh, Laurel Maness, and I've enjoyed like some of her work. I like the character she has with Robert Stone right now, but you got to be able to finish when it gets, you know, when you get your time on TV and it hasn't clicked for her yet. And then we have Jake Atlas and Kushida, and Jake Atlas is a young, underfined talent with a lot of athletic ability and a lot of potential coming in. And he's facing off with Kushida, who, despite the fact that he hasn't been presented that way, we both know Kushida is fucking great. So why mm-hmm. are these guys only giving three minutes? Because not only are they getting boned, but at this stage of the game, if I am developing talent, I want Jake Atlas getting six or eight minutes with a guy like Kushida. Absolutely, especially since there's no live events and stuff right now where you can do a Kushida-Jake Atlas match on a house show and get you know get him those reps and things like that. You TV's the only time that they're getting right now, other than probably you know a couple performance center appearances jake atlas like working with kushida you're just you're gonna learn he's been he's a veteran he's been there forever he's wrestled on the big stage you know and then atlas yeah he won his first match but he still is you know he's just a guy like we don't really know much about him going having a good eight minute competitive match or so with kushida eight to ten minutes puts him closer you know like on the map even if kushida like you said has to be presented as a star people know that Kushida's very fucking good so jake atlas being on his level you know, or showing that he can be on his level does wonders for him. But a three-minute loss, even if it was a fun little, you know, it was a decent three minutes, doesn't help him. 
exactly. nobody really went out there. Exactly. And one of the criticisms I got about my criticism of the cruiserweights was, well, Larry, not everybody has to go out there and have a 15-minute five-star match. And that wasn't my point at all. It's that you've presented this tournament as kind of a centerpiece of NXT right now. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal because Jordan Devlin can't travel. You're crowning an interim champion. And to me, and I don't know, I think that what they were doing was just trying to work shorter matches. And we'll talk about the empty arena thing here coming up a little bit. But basically, I think they were trying to work shorter matches, but it came off like they really didn't care about the cruiserweight guys this week at all. Yeah, like there's a way to put on short matches and have it be impactful or memorable or, you know, or even if you do one short and then one decent late, like, you know, it makes sense. These both felt like they booked out, like they booked the show, they laid it out and then they said, shit, we have to run the tournament. Let's just plug in these matches here and there and give them a couple minutes each. You know, like that's literally what it felt like. It was an afterthought to everything else that was announced for the show and they wanted to get the Finn Balor segment over and, you know, Johnny Gargano and his new theme and the carry and cross debut. And then they were like, oh, yeah, there's cruiserweights. Yeah. So obviously, you know, I mean, and again, we, we aren't saying that NXT was bad this past week. It was it was no. a fine show. Like Donovan Dijakovic and Johnny Gargano, I thought, had a good wrestling match. Mm-hmm. But my only concern with that was is last week they kind of presented the new Candice LeRae. And I yeah. thought they did a really nice job with that. And I like Johnny Gargano kind of being the over-the-top husband at ringside and doing the announcement for her and everything. I thought that worked really well into the new stick. And then this week, you know, Johnny and Dijakovic, they have a good wrestling match. But the thing that bothered me, and you may disagree, which is cool, but I felt like in week one of the new Johnny Gargano, they went out there and they basically told you two things. Johnny's still a good wrestler. But he's also cliche heel number one. Because it it felt very main roster bland. Yeah, I could absolutely see that. Like, there was nothing about this match that let me know Johnny Gargano is going to be a special heel. Like, we all know Johnny Gargano is one of those unbelievable babyface underdogs. Like, he's mastered that. Um, But he had a chance to really show us that he can do something special as a heel and while some of his promos have been good i do think a few of them have been a little awkward and kind of cringy um you know like a little bit of what him and candace did in their home was kind of weird but parts of it did work really well and like you said i enjoyed him as the -the over-the-top intro but then you come out you just have a basic match and then you get help from your wife's distraction and stuff like honestly i would have liked if you know he still maybe he won kind of in a cheap way but not a way that we see a million times um, I did kind of like the turbo. You know, we don't see the turnbuckle stuff enough anymore. I think, um, but I would have liked it if Candice came out and gave him the over-the-top intro the way he did to her, like just playing off that well. Like it was weird that he was such a part of her match and she was like she came out kind of as an afterthought in his. Um, but yeah, like you said, it didn't feel like there was anything special or different to separate Johnny from. Almost any other hill. Like you could have put anybody else in that spot, and it would have almost been the same thing. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, and this is going to sound really demeaning, but for the most part, they may as well have been Lashley and Lana. Yeah, honestly, just less annoying. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but again, at least the match was good. So we got good wrestling, and um, another good thing I do want to point out on the show is I thought the Carrying Cross debut came off really well, despite the fact that Scarlet lip syncing felt a little cringy. 
Yeah, um, the second she came out doing that, I, like she did the first few words, and I was like, oh, maybe she's just excited and likes the theme, and it's just like you know naturally doing it. You know, maybe you just get caught up in the moment. Then she kept doing it, and I'm like, I don't. This is weird. Everything else about him came up well. I liked that he was just throwing suplexes like crazy, and you know, it was a really. It's exactly what you want from a debut, other than the weird lip sync. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he killed a man, young Leon Ruff of Evolve fame. Mm-hmm. And the, the 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 worst part about that match is his girlfriend, the referee Aja, had to watch him die. <laughs> yeah, I read about that. That that was his girlfriend, and I said, "Oh no." <laughs> so, but um, yeah, I mean, um, Karrion Cross comes out there. He looks cool. He has a cool entrance. And the one thing I did dig, and I saw some people kind of complaining about it. I thought that was like a stupid complaint, though, is the fact that, like, well, he was beating him up while the fog was still in the ring. And I kind of dug that because he's just dropping this dude on his dome with fucking snap suplexes. And the fucking fog is just kind of rising as he does it. And I thought that looked cool, actually. And, um, yeah, and- I just I just liked the murder in a dude. I We've... It's funny, Kevin and I have an NXT TakeOver Brooklyn uh, thing coming up, and mm-hmm. we kind of talk about debut matches sometimes and how they're not always a showcase, and the guy gives a little too much to where the first time out, you have to establish his shit. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, it's it's a few things here. So first, I do want to say that um, in terms of you know debut matches and stuff, it always depends, like, Obviously, Nakamura's debut in TakeOver Dallas needed to be him and Sami Zayn having a killer match. But then when he got to the main roster, he had, like, the two-and-a-half-star special going 50-50 with Dolph Ziggler. And it's like, well, you just took away all of his momentum there. Like, that doesn't need to be a one-minute squash, but, you know, that needs to be something impressive, and it wasn't. And that's why I like when somebody debuts and they just wreck somebody the way Cross did. And... And, uh, you know, going back to what you said about the fog being in the rain, it's one of those things where, you know, people always talk that uh, they don't like when WWE feels, uh, I guess the word is too staged. Like people will do their finisher toward the, you know, their move so they can be at the hard cam. But for me, I feel like somebody who attacks even while his fog is still in the ring is like, I'm not waiting for anything to be presented well i'm just going out there to kick ass no matter what yeah i mean he got over his two big moves which is side suplex and a choke out finish and it was exactly what it needed to be yeah so i exactly. really exactly i really enjoyed that and like the finn balor thing kind of annoyed me for the fact that they hyped all week that finn balor is going to name his attacker and then he comes out and he's like Talking about people are coming after the top dog, thinking they're getting a push and they're going to get squashed. And I was kind of wondering in the back of my head, like, did they hire Vince Russo out of desperation? It came off kind of weird, and it also felt like, again, to go back to main roster stuff, when there was like three weeks in a row where Daniel Bryan was going to have a major announcement, and then he, he was there, and then we didn't get anything. Yeah, it was... And to be honest, I actually... I like the idea of Finn coming out and straight up saying, you know, you came at the, the, I guess, you know, not to say Roman Reigns, but you came at the big dog of NXT to make a name for yourself. That's not going to happen. And then he just left. And I was like, okay, he kept it short and to the point. Like, yeah, you hyped it up. He didn't reveal anything, but he let you know that whoever it is, he's coming after. That was sufficient. You didn't need to do the whole Cameron Grimes thing after. You know, you could have told us next week, Oh, at the Performance Center, Finn Cameron Grimes was getting interviewed, and he said some stuff, and Finn Balor overheard it, and now they're having a match, and that would have been fine. 
Yeah, and like the other thing too, on top of it, and I agree with you, is the fact that like I like Cameron Grimes. I think Cameron Grimes is a good wrestler. I liked a lot of his uh, shit as Trevor Lee. Yeah, but like you're teasing this big reveal, and people are wondering: is it Imperium? Is it Walter? Because they've been teasing that. And at the end of the night, we end up with it's going to be Finn Balor and Cameron Grimes in his hat. Yeah. And like it's that, that's no offense to Cameron Grimes. I'm not trying to be a dick about it, but like it felt it just it, it kind of let me down. Yeah, agreed 100%. It does it just it could be something really good because like you said we know that, you know, we watched Trevor Lee and we've seen him do things. I watched him wrestle for 105 minutes and was in, you know, engrossed enthralled the whole time. Um but like you said, it's basically Cameron Grimes in his hat and Finn Balor beat him in Probably a three-star special that doesn't really feel, you know, it's just kind of there. Yeah. So, you know, kind of a mixed bag on some stuff. Um, speaking of something else I thought was kind of a mixed bag, we we had Charlotte Neo Shirai, which on paper looks spectacular because when Lady Big Dog steps up in big matches, we know Charlotte yeah. delivers. We know Neo's mm-hmm. great. And that's a match she reportedly really wanted since she came to WWE. So it's like, you know, this is the makings of something that could be really, really good. Like, I'm not saying it was going to be like a four and a half star takeover special, but I was expecting more than we got, and what we got was good. Mm-hmm. And I w- God, I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just going to agree. Like, you know, I went. I think it was three and a quarter, and that might have been generous. Um, but it just, it really felt like they there was making the makings in there of something really good. Like at the beginning, when Charlotte's all cocky, and then. Eos doing flips and cartwheels and stuff, and Charlotte's like, "Wait a minute, what is happening here? <laughs> I did not prepare for this." Yeah, like that's really well done, and then it just it kind of felt like they had like a good TV match that ends in the DQ before you get the big pay per view match, which is booking that I don't really like often. Yeah, yeah. And then the 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 thing that comes the mixed bag for me is they have a good match; it's enjoyable. Again, like you said, you know they can do more. And Rio, there's a DQ with Charlotte uh, using the kendo. Rio comes out and makes a save, and then like Eo's all mad at Rio. And yeah. like what I'm thinking is, is like what I think would have worked much better is they have a good competitive match, and maybe Eo's running wild towards the end, and she goes up for the moonsault. Rhea runs out and costs her the match, which number one justifies Io's anger at her, because mm-hmm. technically she really shouldn't be that upset that she got saved. But number yeah. number two, you can play off the story that Rhea's basically like, listen, bitch, nobody's gonna beat Lady Big Dog but me. Yep, that's exactly how you know I would look at it. I for my Patreon reviewed a Saturday night's main event where uh Tito Santana was defending the IC title against Hercules and Macho Man is watching in the back and he comes out and like stops Hercules from winning because he wants to be the one to beat Tito, uh, not Tito, I'm bugging, sorry, uh, Ricky Steamboat for the title. And um, like that's, that would have been what it is. Rhea Ripley's like, look, I'm beating Charlotte for the title because she got lucky at WrestleMania or whatever. And then you can build towards maybe a triple threat or Io Rhea or something like that. And like you said, it would have justified Eo's anger because Eo just seems like a crazy woman. Like, you know, like the, the old Vince McMahon booking special or the commentary, oh, women are all crazy, you know? Like, it's like, why are you so mad at Rhea? Yeah, that's like the WWE special with the women a lot. It's basically, I, I titled it years ago, Bitches Be Crazy. 
That's pretty much. And then, you know, that's what comment JBL is always like, well, you know, you can't believe it. And it's like, come on, man. So, but again, it's, um, again, it's not all bad. It's just really mixed bag. And it also, it doesn't feel like what NXT booking was for the longest time. It feels more main roster booking. And there's, there's people that are going to tell you that, well, you have to book more like Raw and SmackDown so you can make the big money and be successful. But the other thing is, too, is I also think that there are people out there that want something different from Raw and SmackDown. They don't want just a Raw and SmackDown light with guys they don't know. They uh-huh. they want NXT to stand out. There are people that want AEW to stand out. There are people that want MLW and ROH to stand out. People don't want the same thing three nights a week. Yeah, and when you look back to pre-pandemic, like, I want to say it's February. So I just did a, a piece on one of the websites uh, that I write for where it was oh, Kenny Omega's, like, best matches in New Japan and AEW. And I did his AEW, and I realized there was, like, a four-week span where he just had bangers against SCU, the Lucha Brothers, the Pac uh, Iron Man match, and then the Revolution Tag. And I was like, man, granted, the Revolution Tag was a pay-per-view, but Dynamite was just putting on really good shows, like, three or four weeks in a row, and... At that same time, NXT was putting on really good shows, and it just it felt like like remember I remember I remember you saying like Wednesday nights was the night everybody looked forward to because we got really enjoyable wrestling. And I granted you know things changed because of the pandemic, but it just feels like NXT is kind of at times like you said retreated into main roster booking. It's like you don't need that you know it can be the alternative, especially if you're trying to beat AEW in the ratings. The people who are watching AEW are watching it because it's not WWE. You know, those are the people who, for the most part, are like, I mean, not everybody, but for the most part are like, there's things about WWE we don't like, and AEW's doing something different, so this is where we're going to go. But they also can like NXT, because it can be different from what, we got, what we've got, what we got on Raw and SmackDown for the past forever, pretty much. Yeah, seriously, it does feel like forever. And that's the thing, I mean, that's why I really like Wednesday nights, because there was a time that felt like both shows were really clicking really well. NXT has had some kind of weird fluctuations, though, and it's just, and again, that's kind of like why I wanted to talk to you tonight about this, mm-hmm. because again, we both cover these shows, and we, we, we watched it, we've watched NXT for a long time, yeah. and there were just spurts where NXT, I mean, even when it was an hour, it was just, you know, there were people that would sit there and bull, oh, I don't, you know, the NXT weekly thing isn't really that good, but the takeovers are great. But there was a, there was a time if you were actually paying attention to those hour shows, that they were focused shows, they were concise shows, they were they had a direction that you could pinpoint every week. Like okay, this week they're building this. Next week, okay, they're starting to build to this, but they added to the build for the whatever this week or from two weeks ago. It was always there, and, and it always. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say it. What what's really weird is. There's these weird narratives about NXT. They're a weird group of people that will tell you every week that the show is actually bad. Mm-hmm. And this is false. Like, this week's show was solid but disappointing, but that doesn't make it bad. Correct. And then there are other people that will every week tell you, NXT is the greatest fucking show of the week. It's better than Raw. It's better than SmackDown. It's better than AEW. It's better than Mongolian Championship Wrestling. Whatever the fuck <laughs> they want to say. And... I'm sorry to tell you, 
NXT hasn't been that great show for a while. It just isn't. But it also isn't bad. It's in that weird middle to where it's usually either solid or it's good. But we really haven't had that hot NXT show in a while. And again, part of that is the pandemic. But it's also what I feel is a directional shift in some of the stuff. Yeah, like, you know, I still, I don't review it every week. Um, but I do still, you know, watch Dynamite for the most part. And I don't, you know, their shows have also obviously taken a hit because of the pandemic. It's just, no matter how hard you try, it's, it's weird to put on a show with no crowd, you know? Um, but you can still get bits of their, their creativity there. They're still booking in a way that doesn't feel always, you know, granted, they're not perfect. But they're not booking in a way that just feels kind of, it doesn't feel lazy to me um, for the most part. And a lot of what NXT has done has felt kind of lazy. Like you said, it's not at all bad. But there is this case, especially for us who you know, right on 401 Mania and get these comments. And it's like the commenters feel like there's either, like you said, NXT is the greatest show ever or NXT is awful. And it's like there is middle ground. Like I said, I reviewed a New Japan show and gave it a seven and a half out of ten. And they were like, oh, Kevin just hates New Japan. And it's like, do you do realize that there's not just, it's not, you know, there's areas of gray in there. Like I can kind of like a show or think it's good. I don't have to think it's the best ever or the worst ever. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's just really weird. And it, it's, it's, you, I get the same stuff with the AEW stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I really enjoyed AEW last week. I think I gave it like an 8 or something. Or, mm-hmm. And, oh, Jesus Christ, Larry, open up the score a little bit. That was easily like a 9.5. And I'm thinking, okay, that's great if you think it's a 9.5. That's why we have the little voting gimmick on top of the reviews mm-hmm. when we give scores. But the thing is, if you're telling me you thought that show was a 9.5... That leads me to believe that you feel that's one of the greatest episodes of wrestling TV you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I did not feel that way, so I cannot give it a 9.5. Yeah, I'm not going to, uh, you know, granted, it, it's, you know, they can feel however they want, but I'm not going to put that even on the level of, like I said, in February when Dynamite was on fire, putting on, you know, just tremendous shows each week. That episode of Dynamite last week was nowhere near those so it's like, what do those get? Like a twelve out of ten, yeah. you know? I know. So are we going to break yeah. the scoring system? Yeah. It's, <laughs> and um, one thing we've learned during this uh, pandemic era, and something Steve and I talk about a lot on the Thursday shows, is um, you have to be smart with who you book against who and the time you give them, because in this empty arena setting there is a threshold you really shouldn't pass. And for me, and it might be different for you, I generally think, and you can get away with it if you have the right guys working against each other and you have really good workers. For me, for the most part, 15 minutes is roughly that threshold. Uh, yeah, for the most part. You know, um, I've seen a lot of, the, a lot of you know, they've tried to put long, longer matches to build time because... It is such a weird situation. Like I brought it up, um, the Alistair Black Apollo Crews twenty-eight minute match. Like it's not really necessary, <laughs> and it would have been a lot better if it was, like you said, like fifteen minutes. Um, only a few matches have gone past that and really clicked for me. Charlotte Rhea Ripley. I mean, I don't even know if that went past fifteen, um, but it was you know right around there. But then you had something like Edge Orr, which is like that shouldn't have gone thirty-seven minutes. So you're right. There is a, a threshold that, for the most part, even the best guys. I think the fun street fight on AEW this week, which was a street fight and had a lot of cool things, went under 20, you know? So it's like definitely you need to know who's exceeding in these situations and who's not and such. 
Yeah, see, you have to book to your strengths, man. It's like, again, I like Akira Tozawa and Jack Gallagher. I didn't want them to go 20 minutes. I just wanted my guys to get like eight or nine minutes to show what they can do because they're really great. And And feel important. Yeah, and exactly, and feel important and to add to that tournament, which, again, I think the tournament is a really smart idea during this time when you have to fill out your TV. Impact is doing a number one contenders tournament right now because they don't know when Tessa's coming back. And you have to do what you have to do. I mean, tournaments are not a bad idea, but again, you have to pair up the right people and you have to know who can go 10, who, who should go five, who can go 15. And you just have to allocate properly. And like, we'll talk about money in the bank. Drew and Seth Rollins went a little over 19, but they were two guys that could do that. Yeah. So again, you have to work to your strengths. And we've learned also in this empty arena, Eric, I think one thing is very clear. There are people that are not empty arena wrestlers because the empty arena setting really exposes people that are not clean workers or really uh, like, like, like if you're not a Roderick, like Roderick Strong can work anywhere because Roddy Strong is great. Um, A guy like Kenny Omega can largely work the empty arena with no problem. He had a great match with Trent a while back. But there are guys that can do that. And there's one gentleman we found out in the empty arena setting who is not working well. Part of it is because his work isn't that tight. And part of it is because his gimmick relies so much on fan reaction and interaction. And that is the Velveteen Dream. Yeah, and it's a... It's a shame because I really, you know, like Velveteen Dream. Um, I've really enjoyed his character. He feels different and, you know, fresh for the most part, even though he does uh, play to the nostalgia stuff often. But, yeah, he has really needed the crowd. And it's one of those things where you can tell the plan was Dream Cole, and then it happened with no crowd, and it was like, uh, maybe this wasn't the way to go. <laughs> it's not working as well without an audience. Yeah, so, I mean, they had their match on NXT last week, and it was a fine wrestling match. There was nothing horrible about it. Um, the finish I wasn't a big fan of, because not only do we have some interference, but we have Dexter fucking Loomis involved. I don't know where that's going. That's been the weirdest thing. And the weird, the, I think the weirdest thing about that is not only are they trying to do something with Dexter Loomis. I mean, God, I watched enough of him as Sam Sean, TNA, and Impact. But there are people that are trying to tell me every week that Dexter Loomis is a very good professional wrestler and should be in the main event. And I'm just, I'm shaking my head, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> um, I was not the brave soul that you were, and I did not watch a lot of TNA during the Sam Shaw era. Um, I just knew him as the guy who was creepy with um, uh, Christy Hemi. And when I saw him at NXT Live, I know a lot of people were like, who the hell is this? Why does this theme music sound like the Stranger Things intro? And he has a glorious mustache. Other than that, everybody was like, this dude is weird. Um, But yeah, I'm not seeing anything that makes me feel like this guy has it or as a star or anything it's an interesting character like it's one that i'm in, i'm looking forward to seeing more of but he just doesn't feel like he's he feels way out of place in this storyline 
It's it, it is just odd. I I really don't get it, but the Velveteen Dream Adam Cole match again. It wasn't exactly booked great um, with the finish and stuff, but the other thing was is I don't know about you, Kev, but it's pretty hard to have a very average match with Adam Cole these days. Yeah, like you know, I'm someone who has been open about the fact that I didn't love Ring of Honor Adam Cole, but NXT Adam Cole has been phenomenal. Um, even the stuff that I haven't loved, like I didn't love the trilogy with Gargano. I thought the first one was phenomenal, but the other two were kind of just there, but they were still not like far from bad matches. Um, yeah, you know, he was clicking on all, firing on all cylinders when the Ciampa feud and the Daniel Bryan match and him and Seth had a good match on Raw before the finish, the cheap finish. Um, but just to have an average bland match with him, like that hasn't really happened much lately. And it, that's exactly what this match was. The other thing I want to say about Velveteen Dream 2 is, and a lot of people aren't really wanting to admit to this, is it's also just not the empty arena stuff. When he came back from his injury those first couple weeks, he he wasn't looking great either. Yeah. And that was with fans still. Yeah, I can agree with that. Like the cage match and stuff with Ryder Strong, fine match, but... It just it didn't feel the same way. Like it's you know the the reaction when he came back was huge, and I don't know it just it hasn't worked as well as pre injury uh, Velveteen Dream who felt like he was on fire. Everything he did was working. Yeah, so I mean a combination of and again I don't know if he's having lingering injury issues, but a combination of him not being very good when he came back and then the empty arena thing kind of exposing him. Um, it's, it's not a good run right now for him. It's, it's not a good look. And I mean, I, I don't know what you do to fix it right now. Cause God only knows when we're gonna have a crowd back. Yeah. And, that, uh, no idea. And that's the thing. I mean, his act is so reliant on that crowd interaction, um, how they interact with his entrance, how they react to his matches. And, and again, people are to think I'm just slagging on and like shitting on Velveteen Dream, but Go back and read some of the TakeOver reviews, man. I loved a lot of what he did on TakeOvers. The Ricochet match, mm-hmm. the Aleister Black match. Oh, the Aleister Black match is unbelievable. Him and Ciampa had a great NXT title match. Exactly. So, I mean, this is a guy that when he's in front of that crowd, he's pulling off of that crowd, and he's in there with the right guy, he delivers. He steps up. Now, I don't I don't know if he's ever going to develop into what what we call a great worker, so to speak. But he's a guy that we've seen can step up. He can deliver. But right now, I just I don't see it happening for a long time and until we get a crowd back and until he starts getting back into what Velveteen Dream was because right now he's just kind of a weird dude with a purple light having average matches. That's exactly the way to describe him. So I, um, I mean, I, I just I don't know how to fix it because... It, the crowd is such a big part of him and well, yeah it's like without that i'm not you know it's just like something needs to change for him in general because the current you know his current stick just doesn't translate well to no crowd and like you said even having the crowd before you know come back from the injury hasn't really clicked either so i don't know what it is and i think the worst part of it all is is something you brought up earlier in the show was the fact that Obviously, there's no live events. There's no coconut loop because 
if you were really wanting to get Velveteen, Velveteen Dream ready for Adam Cole to possibly take the title, he could be working the Largo loop every weekend when they do three shows. He could work Bobby Fish one night. He could work Roderick Strong one night. He could work Kyle O'Reilly the next night. Mm-hmm. And just put him in a loop working with those guys because they're all experienced. They're all great to varying degrees. And those are the kind of matches that would get him ready for that big push. But unfortunately, we can't do that right now. Yeah, and it's just, it, like you said, it's a tough situation. It's hard to figure out what the best course of action to do. I guess that's why we don't get paid the big bucks to do that. Um, but yes, yeah, something's got to give. Because if they are planning on putting the NXT title on Dream, it's going to just feel very anticlimactic and weak. Not because it's without a crowd, but because it's just not going to click well, you know? So, I guess to kind of wrap this up, and I'll um, I'll let you uh, give a little rebuttal, and you can agree or disagree, but I sit there, and I, I largely agree with you. There have been times since back in October where, obviously, NXT has had a lot of good shows. They've had some very good shows. We've had some great matches. And there are times when NXT feels like NXT. But there's also been times that... I just feel like I'm watching Raw or SmackDown light and it it just it's really weird. It doesn't feel like the NXT I'm used to. And people are gonna go, Well, Larry, you have to change. It can't just stay the same. <laughs> but again, there was the thing was it was working and they were drawing some numbers early on. Yeah. And then they weren't. Mm-hmm. And to me, and I know some people are to think that this is a gross overreaction, I think part of the problem, and again, Kev, if you disagree, it's going to be cool with me, it's fine, but I think that part of the problem is, is like, you look at some of these weeks to where they ran at one point, like, back-to-back ladder matches, and there was the week that they ran two steel cage matches, Mm -hmm. and obviously they had to cancel takeover, but they've essentially worked a couple mini takeovers. Yeah. Part of the problem to me is I feel that they're becoming I feel that the company is trying to main roster them a little more because I think they're becoming obsessed with the AEW competition. And I think to me that it's kind of hurting the show cuz like again this week like you said you had Gargano and Dijakovic, you had the Cruiserweight stuff and you had two marquee matches in EO and Charlotte and Cole and Dream. And the show ends up only being a fine show. You walk away going, man, that was a fine show, but it's NXT. It really should have been more. Yeah, I could actually uh, see that. You know, I haven't really thought about that being the case. I don't know if I, I don't know if they're like exactly obsessed with it, but it is a case where it could be that NXT has been losing in the ratings to AEW and they might feel like, well, it's still AEW still not beating Raw and SmackDown, so maybe what happens on Raw and SmackDown should happen on NXT. And it hasn't fully been that case, but this week's episode was kind of the perfect one to look at because you had three matches that had potential to be really good. Gargano, Dajakovic, EO, Charlotte, and Dream Cole. And they all kind of had shitty finishes, like shitty main roster finishes. And then, which are great, I don't, I don't, 
No, I say shitty finishes, but it's like, I, I get sometimes heels need to cheat. I'm fine with that. But it's like, you do them three times in three big matches in a row, and it's like, why are you doing it? And then you got the cruiserweights who have potential to have good matches getting next to no time or shine. And it's like, what is happening here? Why is this, you know, is this the case? Um, it's going to be very interesting whenever we're back to a point where there's crowds and stuff. Does NXT go back to the show that was killing it? When Dynamite, because when Dynamite first premiered, like, yeah, they were winning the ratings, but I felt like NXT was beating them in terms of quality shows, uh, at least early on. And then Dynamite kind of flipped the switch early in 2020, and they were going back and forth a little bit. But now it's just like whether or not, you know, I, I haven't thought Dynamite's been great, you know, but it does feel at least like they're trying and not like they're. I don't know what the word is because, like I said, I don't think it's the NSC not trying. Maybe the NSC's trying too hard. You know, I like me. We both didn't really like the Gargano Champa cinematic match. Like that felt like a total thing where they were trying too hard. Um, so maybe it's a case of that. Like you said, they are might they might be a little obsessed with the fact that AEW's been kicking their ass and it's causing them to make mistakes. Yeah, and I think that most people are to feel that this is a gross over exaggeration, but. I'm going to be dead honest with you, and you know what I would love to see is, I would love to see, and I don't know if it would be USA or WWE making the call, I would actually love to see NXT just move to Thursday. And let NXT focus on being NXT again. Because when NXT is focused on being NXT, NXT is so fucking fun. Mm -hmm. It's entertaining. It, It feels really fun. And the other thing is, the best part is when NXT only had to worry about being NXT, they did really good episodic TV. Yeah. And they were really is, good at building, you know, weekly things. And that is the one thing where I think they've been lacking comparative to AEW. And as you said, AEW hasn't been putting on like nine out of ten shows. But the yeah. fact is, the weekly AEW shows have been, I feel, smartly booked. They build mm-hmm. week to week, like the, the the TNT tournament stuff all worked really well. They were doing some undercard feuds, and they and the other thing that like really surprised me was is that like the AEW stuff to me has just been coming off a little better. And the scary part was they were doing that with compared to NXT, a skeleton crew. Yeah, because they don't they don't have all the international guys. Nyla Rose couldn't come in. The Bucks and Adam Page aren't coming in. So the roster took a big hit to where WWE, you have so many people that live in Florida right there. Mm-hmm. And if you had to, you can bump down a main roster person for a week for a special appearance because so many of them live in Florida. Yeah. I mean, for Christ's sake, no offense, the one Uso isn't doing a goddamn thing right now. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, and I'm not saying that like Jimmy or Jay Uso is going to be a big ratings draw, but you pop in and you do a fun surprise match and it's fun, mm-hmm. you know. And like the, the the running joke with Steve and I is like we're waiting for whichever one isn't injured. We're we're hoping he teams with Kona Reeves, and they're just <laughs> hang on, and they're just going to be the Usos, and it's going to be like when the Barbarian was Sione and joined the Head Shrinkers. <laughs> I knew it. I was like, you're going to say just make them the Usos, like just don't even change anything about. You know, like, act like there's no change. Exactly. But, I mean, I, and again, I know it's probably just an overreaction, but I just, I want NXT to get back to doing what NXT did really, really well. 
Mm-hmm. Because when they did it, they thrived. And when NXT was more focused on NXT early in the quote-unquote war with AEW, we were having legit great Wednesdays like every week. Yeah. And then, you know, every once in a while, AEW dips down, and then NXT pops up a little bit quality-wise. And then lately, it's been a little more AEW for me. And I just... I. I th- there's no reason that NXT shouldn't be putting on as good a show as, as AEW. There really isn't. There's a ton of talent on there. They have talent they're not even using. There's no reason. It shouldn't be close to, if not as good or better, every week. So I don't know where it's going wrong. I think the quote-unquote main rosterization of a lot of stuff isn't helping. And again, I personally think that they're a little too focused on the quote-unquote war. I just I want NXT to be NXT, basically. Yeah, I agreed. Like, I would just like for it to go back to the NXT that worked, um, you know, for so long. It's like you don't have to try to do anything. Like, they didn't have to do anything special to compete with or beat AEW. They could have just been NXT with, you know, I, I want to say one of the episodes that popped up a big rating. I think when they beat AEW, it was just like Charlotte came down. So it's like you can just book a good show like you normally were. And maybe throw in a big name here or there, and that would be enough. You don't have to do, you know, all of these things that they're trying to do. It's like you're you're shooting yourself in the foot. Exactly. So, um, I mean, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to shake out. And obviously, we'll be reviewing every week, Kevin. We'll see how it shakes out. But um, mm-hmm. because again, like the thing is, I've been praising about AEW is that it's been simple, episodic, well done TV, and that's what NXT used to do all the time. And it's been less than that lately. And it just, I don't know why. It's like they, they announce stuff for the next week. And sometimes it's really good. Or it looks really good like this past week. And then like you get this show this week. And again, there, it wasn't a bad show. This is not NXT is bad. I'm not one of those people. What I'm telling you is it, it disappointed. Because it should have been so much better. Yeah, I agree. 100%. So uh, that, that's kind of the NXT talk, unless you have anything else you would like to add, Kevin? No, just a consistent case of it's not bad, but it should be so much better. Yeah. So that is our little NXT talk, and that is going to lead us now, Kevin, to WWE Money in the Bank 2020, taking place mostly at the Performance Center and partly at WWE headquarters. Mm-hmm. This was a show that going in was kind of interesting to me because of the money in the bank gimmick they were going to do. But outside of one or two matches didn't look that great to me. So I didn't know what to expect tonight. Yeah, same. It was uh, one of those things where it could have gone either way. Like it could have been a total disaster or it could be surprisingly fun. Um, One thing that has been kind of welcome in this situation is that I never... And I mean, it's kind of mean to say, but it's like, I never really expect these shows to be all that great. Um, either way, like, you know, yeah, Eos, uh, Charlotte had so much potential or at WrestleMania, I was excited for Charlotte, Rhea, but it's like, I know to take these matches with a grain of salt because of the lack of crowd. If it ends up being great, awesome. I love it. If it ends up kind of just missing the mark, I'm like, well, you know, I kind of get it. So I think I'm a little easier on things uh, because of the situation. So it's like, will this be a pleasant surprise or will it just be a show I spent a few hours watching, you know? So, Money in the Bank 2020, the kickoff match was Jeff Hardy making his in-ring return, battling Cesaro, and 
I think the best thing about the match was the fact that if you're to give Jeff a first match back, Cesaro is a great guy to do it with because he's awesome and can work with everybody. Yep. So they got 13 and a half minutes. They got plenty of time. Uh, a good match to knock the rust off of Jeff. I thought they had an, an, a good and enjoyable kickoff match. I mean, it was... I just it was entertaining was the best part I I liked a lot of what they did Um, the weird thing to me and you may feel different was I thought Jeff looked really solid I I didn't think he looked off or anything so that was nice to see because I know he was working out a bit before the pandemic and everything but again it's been hard for him to get in ring time yeah but this match felt like oddly almost like a Cesaro showcase match because he took a mm. lot of this match, and while Jeff looked fine, I thought Cesaro looked great in this, because he's so yeah. good. And I, I guess the only thing, like, the only minor complaint I might have is, I get that I guess that they wanted to test Jeff, and I again, I found it enjoyable, and I thought it was good. But I kind of thought they missed the mark a little bit, because it felt a little... A little too much Cesaro heavy, and I, I know that's going to sound weird because, well, Larry, you know, you're going to be upset that he lost. No, I knew he was going to lose as fucking Jeff Hardy. I mean, it was the whole yeah. gimmick of the match. Um, but it, it was like a little weird almost layout-wise. But again, it didn't hurt the match at all. The only thing I did hate about this match was the fact that Corey Graves and Michael Cole had to talk about Jeff Hardy's redemption story about 77 fucking times. <laughs> because WWE don't do subtlety well, Kev. They really don't. Um, one of the things that they teach you when, uh, you know, I took classes for screenwriting and such, and they teach you, you know, trust your audience, believe that they're smart. You don't have to spell it out for everybody. And granted, there are some people who need to spell it out for them, but for the most part, you don't, you know, like just lay it out there. Let us know what's going on. Don't beat us over the head with it. WWE is really bad about that. They're so bad about that. Um, I did feel like a lot of this match was actually kind of a, a really good layout, you know, and it was indeed a lot of Cesaro. Um, but I think that that worked for the fact that you really want Cesaro to kind of control things in this situation. Um, Jeff is really good at bumping, so he's going to make Cesaro's offense, which already looks good, look even better because Jeff's one of the best at taking a beating when he's, you know, right. Um, like you said, I like the concept of Cesaro being the guy for his first you know, big match back. Um, I thought that the cool spot toward the end after Cesaro's knee was messed up where he got thrown into the steel steps, like it looked really cool. Cesaro's a guy who I feel if there's ever a time to push him, I know that there's been so many times that people have clamored for it. And I, as good as he is, I do think that he's best suited in a tag team. But if there's ever a time to, you know, make him a more prominent piece of TV, it's now. If your whole thing is he can't connect with the crowd for whatever reason, maybe without there being a crowd, Cesaro's the kind of guy who can entertain you. He doesn't need to talk or, you know, do anything that's going to rally the crowd. He's just going to go out there and put on a really good match. And he's one of the guys who can shine in this situation, uh, as he did here. Um, Just high-quality pro wrestling to start the show. Not, you know, match of the year contender. Nothing great, but just very solid wrestling for 13 minutes. I couldn't have asked for much more from the two of them. No, and again, like I said, my stuff is like very minor criticism wise. For just sure, like yeah. The the layout just felt a little odd at times. I expected, I expected not like I I didn't think Jeff was gonna like dominate him because that's not the Jeff Hardy style by any means. I just thought like 
it lacked a little shine for Jeff at times. But again, like you said, though, Cesaro is so good. And yeah, this is definitely a time you, you... This is when you utilize a guy like Cesaro because when you have to fill TV time and you need to do a 10-minute match on TV... I mean, Cesaro is the dude you can go to. You you look at Cesaro and like a guy like Drew Gulak and Daniel Bryan and those guys. Those are your workhorse guys that can work in any atmosphere. And yeah, I mean, again, you don't have to push Cesaro to the world title. That's not what we're saying. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to give him some run at least or try to fill your TV with competent, good professional wrestling, Cesaro is your dude. Yeah, you can give Cesaro 15 minutes with pretty much anybody every week on Raw on SmackDown, and he'll be like, "Well, we're gonna at least get one good match a night," you know. And like you said, your your uh, issues were nitpicking, but you know you got to do that on these podcasts. If you just go out and say this match was good, I liked it. That's nobody wants to hear that, you know. So you gotta, you know, you find these things, and uh, like you said, nitpicking. It's a good match. Exactly. Next up was the SmackDown Tag Team Championship match. The champions, the New Day, the Forgotten Sons, the Miz and Morrison, the Lucha House Party. These guys actually had a really fun uh, eight-man tag on SmackDown heading into this. So I was actually Mm -hmm. looking forward to this, Kev. At the end of the day, the New Day uh, retains the titles at just under 13 minutes. What did you think of our tag title match? Um, I thought it was good. Uh, It's one of those cases where... It's one of the things I think WWE sometimes does really well, these big multi-man, like, uh, clusterfuck matches. You know, you put eight guys in there and just let them just go out and just have a fast-paced match that was, like, good pace, uh, really good pace, fine, you know, like, good action throughout. Um, I like John Morrison's Spanish fly spot into a big crowd of people. I think they did a good job building in some drama toward the end. Like, there's a point where Miz, like, snuck in to steal the match and... That's a finish WWE has used to death. So I was like, oh, wait, this is how it's going to end. And then it did it. And I was like, this is cool. Um, just like I said, a good good opener. Um, again, follows up the Cesaro-Jeff Hardy match. It's just good wrestling. It's a, it's a different kind of wrestling, but it's just a fun match. I opened up your review, and it looks like you enjoyed this a little more than me, but still just good stuff. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was really good. I thought it was on the level of the SmackDown 8-man they had. I mm-hmm. liked the pacing. I thought it was fun. The only minor, minor, minor nitpick, which has nothing to really do with the quality of the match, was the fact that they're harping on this match that Jackson Ricker is at ringside, and he can get involved because it's a fatal four-way, which means there's no count yeah. and no disqualifications. So then he gets involved towards the end, and then the referee fucking kicks him out for no reason. Mm-hmm. And I was like what like you should he's it's fine if he wanted to he'd just make this a three on two or you know join the match and um it reminds me of was it aj styles alistair black at elimination chamber where they were like it's no dq so why aren't the club just jumping him from the start yeah um so yeah just sometimes wwe's rules make no sense also i do want to note that i still think the forgotten sons suck yeah, I mean they're they're they're, <laughs> they're not good, and I, I have people trying to tell me they're great too. So no, it's not. <laughs> they're lying. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed this. I, I thought it was it was a fun way to open the pay per view proper, and um, we were off to a nice start following the kickoff match and that. So I was happy mm-hmm. early on. Agreed. Um, we got uh, comments from Lacey and Drew talking about their matches tonight, and then MVP and r Truth came out for their match. They decided to kill time and talk, which led to Bobby Lashley arriving. And 
he replaced MVP. Mm-hmm. He and Truth argued, and Truth accidentally slapped him, which led to Lashley kicking his ass in 90 seconds. And it was very much a thing that happened on this show. Yeah, it felt like, you know, considering this is already a short show, it was like, were you short on time? You needed to add five minutes here. Um, R-Truth, it's funny because I wrote down as R-Truth was making his entrance, and you can see he, like, raised his hand to do the what's up and then quickly put it down, like, wait a minute, it's an empty crowd. And I was like, R-Truth doesn't work in this empty setting because his joke, you know, comedy characters need the crowd to play off of. And then he gets in the ring and it's just like, well, I'm going to go for it. Like, make some noise. And I was like, okay, he got me back. He's still funny. <laughs> um, Truth him. is, yeah, Truth's entertaining. This is why Truth's going to have a job until he wants to retire. He can just go out there and have a, you know, just a bullshit match and just make you laugh. Just entertaining as hell. Um, if they're trying to rehab Bobby Lashley away from the Lana stuff, whatever, that's fine. Maybe actually do something with him this time instead of you know, just pushing him to like the mid card again and stopping. Um, I mean, how many times can you repackage and like rehype a guy? Uh, honestly, they got rid of the best part about Bobby Lashley, which was Leo Rush. Just bring back Leo Rush and have Bobby Lashley point to his ass, and I'll be on the Bobby Lashley train. There you go. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, King Corbin commenting on the Money in the Bank <laughs> match, put himself over, said he was going to win. Kayla interviewed Bailey and Sasha Banks and uh, stirred up some trouble between them, talking about the recent issues. Kevin, we we, we talk about rating matches and everything. We talk about the five star scale, and I'm, I'm sorry, Kevin, I lied to you. I, I broke the five star scale tonight. <laughs> uh, I gave Sasha Banks a seven star outfit tonight. Uh, so funny enough, like I text my, I have like a text thread with my brother and my friend, and I was like, Sasha Banks. I don't think they were watching the show at the, uh, live. I was like, Sasha Banks looks incredible tonight. So, like, a seven stars. And then I'm getting a little ahead of us here, but Carmella also seven stars tonight. Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. yeah. When Car- when Mella's in the two piece, brother. Yeah, she's... it's yeah tremendous. <laughs> As uh, just recently, I watched some old ECW, and that was Cyrus when Dawn Marie entered the ring. So tremendous. That's right. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you haven't watched this show, I'm not saying you need to necessarily watch this match, but you need to see Sasha's outfit. Yeah, it made up for the fact that I was watching Tamina. (laughs) So we had Bayley defending the SmackDown Women's Championship against Tamina. And what made me laugh was they ran the video package, uh, like, on the pre-show, and her whole, like, hoodie that she would wear was like, ain't nobody Mina, then Tamina. And it's like, you have to say Mina like that. You can't say, you know, so in the video package, she says, ain't nobody meaner than Tamina. And I'm like, no, it's your slogan and you're messing it up. You have to make Mina rhyme with Tamina. I mean, are you surprised that Tamina messed something up? <laughs> Not at all. I Literally, in my notes, I was like, yeah, Tamina's terrible. Her last singles pay-per-view match was against Paige for the Divas title in 2014. And then before that was against Beth Phoenix for the Divas title in 2012. So it's like every few years she rises to one of these title shots and never delivers. Yeah, well, that's the advantage of uh, being related to The Rock. Bailey defeated her in 10 minutes and 40 seconds via pin. Kev, uh, what did you think of this? Um, Like we said, Tamina's bad. They tried a few interesting spots. I do think that Bailey's getting better at the smack talk, especially like without the crowd. Like she's doing better talking shit and uh, things like that. I think that it's a weird like layout for a match because we're used to seeing the big character as like the dominant heel 
and then the baby face tries to overcome it. So, but we had heel Bailey like trying to pick her up and get and falling. And it's like, Bailey, you're supposed to be the smart heel. You're supposed to know that that doesn't work. That's supposed to be what the dumb baby face who doesn't give up does. You know, that's what John Cena does. Um, so just a few things like that. Uh, Bailey's heel hook looked terrible. Like she was just hugging the leg. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, this is not going well. Um, and then just the, the finish is awful. Like Tamina hits the Samoan drop. And I was supposed to believe that Bailey was going to lose. And then Sasha Banks like distracts her, and then Tamina ends up getting rolled up. And it's like, why are we doing this? Why are you protecting Tamina? Bailey should have just beat her. And they did it for got, the Rock, brother. Apparently, and it's like, I know that on these shows sometimes you get a lesser title match because a lot of the stars are in the Money in the Bank match. A few years ago, I think when they did the first one was Money in the Bank, they ran Naomi Lana because Lana wasn't in the match. But I'm like, there was still, like, where's Naomi? She's on SmackDown. Like, why haven't you used, why didn't you do Bailey and Naomi? They were building that a few months ago. Or, you know, just something like, or I would have rather you put Naomi and Money in the Bank and given Dana Brooke this spot. Like, just anybody but Tamina. Yeah, I'm wondering if Naomi is out because her husband's injured or if there's something oh, else going on. But it felt really weird not having Naomi say in this match or the Money in the Bank. But mm-hmm. I guess you didn't really need her for Money in the Bank because it wasn't a traditional Money in the Bank where you needed her athleticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it just it felt really weird not having her around. But I will say that I thought Bailey worked really hard to try to develop something resembling a cohesive wrestling match. Yeah, I mean Bailey is good. I mean her title run hasn't been great, but she worked really hard. Unfortunately, it it didn't work great because. I mean, I even put in my review, Tamina's showing, like, all the mobility of Andre in, like, 85, man. It's like... Yeah, uh, what did you... you One of my favorite lines from you consistently was that uh, Manabu Nakanishi was a planet, and that's pretty much how she was moving. She was moving, like, 2018 Nakanishi. Yeah, and, oh, man, it's just... It's rough, dude. And, like, people were like, well, you're so mean to Tamina. I'm not trying to be mean to her, but the fact is, if you're being put in a title match on pay-per-view... In theory, you should be able to have a good match at some point. Sometimes when you're being when you're reviewing things, you're not gonna you know you can't be nice. Like we respect that the you know these people work hard for you know everything that they do and they're doing things that I could never do. But sometimes you know it's like when you watch a movie and somebody's a bad actor, you're like that's not a good performance. Like <laughs> I can't do better, but that's not a good performance. So Tamina has been with the company for crazy long and has shown like she's never done anything impressive to me even her splash is bad like alicia fox was around forever and never really impressed me either but at least she had a dope northern light suplex yeah like, she did a bridge on that bad boy <laughs> tamina's got nothing even a super kick isn't that good and everyone does a super kick yeah it's oh uh, man i mean again i can go forever in a day without seeing another tamina singles match mm-hmm. and again I, I will say this at least it wasn't bad yeah like, it wasn't like there's been bad, bad matches but i mean at least yeah uh it, it was kind of okay but i mean it's to the point that i may be more mobile than tamina and i'm rocking a prosthetic leg <laughs> i was gonna say yeah you might be so, like yeah it's it's not good so um and then tamita got her ass beat after the match and the heels ran away so can yeah, we just typical stuff and again, like, you know, Bailey sees like she has ideas. 
for being a good heel, but she's booked as just generic heel number seven or whatever, you know? And it's like, why can't you get more creative with the way you book your villains? Yeah, so we get a Seth Rollins promo, and these Seth Rollins promos are so weird to me because I generally think he has really good content. But he's supposed to be the Monday Night Messiah. He's supposed to be like a cult leader that has disciples. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to be Jim Jones. And Jim Jones was charismatic and fuck because he, he talked people into living on this giant gimmick and then they all killed themselves. Yeah. But Seth Rollins gets these promos and he's like, my name is Seth Rollins. He's like Google speak. I am the Monday Night Messiah. And it's just like, Seth, brother, it's like, what you're saying is actually good. And, like, the thing was, is, like, a couple weeks ago, maybe three or four weeks ago or something on Raw, he actually, no, maybe it was the Build the Mania with Owens. There was, like, one promo he did that was fucking great. It was so good. And he had some fire to it, and the content was good. And it's like, it's like they said, this is what works, Seth. Don't ever do that again. Yeah, honestly, like it was that one with Owens was phenomenal. I actually really liked his promo. Uh, again, delivery wasn't perfect, but I did enjoy his promo with uh, in the the contract signing with Drew McIntyre on Raw, especially like the video package version that they showed looked really interesting and cool. Um, but yeah, it's like except he's only had that one promo that really stood out. I don't think he's been bad at all. He's been doing pretty well in these empty arena settings. But like you said, it, it is a case of maybe the delivery needs to be a little more, not flamboyant, but charismatic. You know, make it in a way that I don't just think you're saying something interesting. I'm actually like, I want to be down with this, you know. And I think that would be, that would work better. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It's, it, 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 it feels really odd to me at times. Because again, like I said, content wise, I think the promos have a lot of good in them. Because I think he's like delivering the the proper message, so to speak, mm-hmm. and it's just like I I think if he's supposed to be the character he's supposed to be, it just it needs a little more oomph to it to a point, a little little more charisma, and like this is a guy that you should believe is like an evil son of a bitch that's trying to talk you into the worst things, for sure. And um, yeah, I just uh, like I said, I just I looked back on that promo with Owens, and I just I dug that one and I was just like that is like the best Seth promo in forever absolutely and he did it in front of no people and I'm like it's so uh-huh. good and then I'm like and I'm th- I was thinking to myself it's like if this is what he's going to be more like going forward I'm like yeah buddy I'm like okay yeah absolutely I'd be in for that Seth so I I, I don't know how to fix it though I'm just I'm giving yeah. suggestions so next up the WWE Universal Championship was on the line as Braun Strowman Faced off with his old pal Bray Wyatt. And this was Bray Wyatt in the sweater with the Firefly Funhouse fun music. And he was not the fiend. And my first question is always when I see something like this is... And I know why. It's because they're building to a rematch. But why wouldn't Bray, if he wants to take the championship from him, just be the fiend and be his most powerful form so he can murder this dude? It's like every time Finn Balor would have like a big time... Like when he faced Brock... Yeah. Why the fuck weren't you the demon? You kill everybody mm-hmm. when you're the demon, and then you're just gonna go out and be Fonzie Hip Balor, and you know, and wear your leather yeah. jacket and get your ass kicked. Yeah, and it's you know, especially in a case with Bray, where it's like at least you know Finn 
has been shown to be, you know, this confident wrestler who's done, who's had success normally. Bray Wyatt, you know, granted he beat the Miz in the Firefly Funhouse thing, but he mostly got his ass kicked for a lot of that match. So it's like, why would you come out as this basic form and then not be the fiend? And I get, like you said, doing the rematch or even so coming into this, I was like, they booked themselves into a corner again. They like to do that. Um, Especially because, Bray. Yeah, because Braun, you don't drop the title in a month. He's already had so many moments where his momentum was killed. And you can't have, you don't want Bray to lose because you've already had moments where the fiend momentum has been killed. So it's just one of those cases where it's like, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Um, it's, it's yeah, I don't know. I do think that the Firefly Funhouse Bray at least makes for an entertaining match where the Fiend always does, that doesn't always do that for me. You know, I liked Braun Strowman throwing, uh, like shoving him down, and he's like, "Well, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed today, or you're so strong," and you know, it's just fun little things like that. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff that played well in the empty arena setting. And yeah. I, I did appreciate that, but Braun Strowman retains at 1035. He pins him with the power slam, and um, basically, again, they're they're building up for the rematch because Bray Wyatt didn't get the job done, and I thought the match was going kind of okay. And then, all of a sudden, Braun gets dumped to the floor. Yeah. And he pops up and he's wearing the black sheep mask. And Bray is all happy because he thinks Braun is coming home. And then the puppets all appear and they're all happy because Braun is coming home. And Braun kneels before him and then they hug. And I it felt like bad college theater where they're pretending to be like Broadway doing high art. And I was just like... I kind of got what they were doing story-wise, but I'm like, you were actually having an all-right match. Yeah, it wasn't going poorly. Like I said, I like some of the things that they were doing. Um, they had, uh, It was funny that, you know, there's a puppet in the crowd and stuff. Um, but yeah, the whole Black Sheep thing. Again, it's one of those things where, from a storyteller perspective, it kind of makes sense for Bray Wyatt. But this is why the Bray Wyatt character, regardless of the, you know, the incarnation doesn't always work in matches because stories don't work for the matches you know it's like oh this was kind of you know like it ended like a wet fart kind of (laughs) yeah so i um i didn't like this i think it was my least favorite thing on the show overall and the worst part was is like i said it started out i i enjoyed the start bronze overpowering him as you said bray had some funny little lines like you're a strong fella aren't you you know, and just yeah. like little stuff like that. And it's little stuff like that that does play well in the empty arena. Like you talked about, you know, Bailey is up their smack talk game. And you know, I mean, God, Oscar is fucking amazing in the empty arena stuff. So it's like yeah. little things like that really help. And then it's just like, you know, we're actually doing okay here, fellas. Let's bust out the sheet mask and the puppets. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, like we said, he has a lot of ideas in his matches and sometimes that's you know, too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. There's, he has so many ideas going on. And then it's like, why can't you just have a mess that just has one idea going for it? You know? Yeah. Sometimes simpler is just better. And it's, you know, yeah, like maybe Braun just kind of runs through him because he's not the fiend here. And then we get the fiend next month, you know? Exactly. I think there was a better way to get to it. And like I said, it's just, um, I, I hate when a match starts well, and again, I'm not saying that this was going to be like a great match, but what I'm saying is 
what they were doing was fine. It was working. Mm-hmm. They were telling a good story through that work. And then it was like, it's community theater time. Yeah. And it kind of, it went off the edge for me there. So yeah, I was not a fan of this one. Uh, we got a, f- a video of the hacker gimmick. He apparently sees everything, hears everything, and he is the truth. And mm-hmm. eventually the hacker is coming and who the hell knows yeah. what it's going to be, but you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I've heard the rumors, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so the, the show hit a little bit of a lull there in the middle, and it's something we talked about with uh, WWE pay-per-views before. You kind of get that strong start, and mm-hmm. you get that false sense of security, and then it kind of goes off a cliff a little bit. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, things picked up, Kevin. We had the WWE Championship match, and it was Drew McIntyre defending against the old Monday Night Messiah, Seth Rollins, including his new theme music tonight. Yeah, definitely a weird one. I've always, uh, you know, his theme was one that really grew on me. I remember when he first got it, I was like, this is generic. And then it grew on me, and then the Burn It Down was cool, but I guess they had to remove Burn It Down because, although I guess you didn't now, I was going to say the crowd reacts positively to it, but there's no crowd now. (laughs) Um, I'm not a fan. It sounds kind of like Bailey's, (laughs) which also isn't very good. Uh, maybe it'll grow on me. I don't know. But yeah, it's it's not a great change as of right now. So we were talking about um, in the NXT stuff that you have to be careful in these empty arena settings. There's kind of that 15-minute threshold unless you have guys that work well together or are good workers and can deliver. So we have Drew McIntyre and Seth Rollins here. Drew retains it a little over 19 minutes, Kevin. And what did you think of our world title match? Uh, easily the best match on the show. Um, and probably for me, the second best empty arena match WWE has done beside, like, I think only Charlotte Rhea, I liked a little more. Um, I thought this was super smart. Uh, when Seth is left to just wrestle, Seth is one of the best in the world. It's when he gets, you know, weird, like the fiend gimmick and the hell in a cell match and stuff where it's like, why are you doing all this goofy shit? Just let Seth Rollins be Seth Rollins. Um, I like how, you know, he's this confident messiah who's here to save everybody, talks a big game, and then once the match starts, Drew McIntyre is all over him. He's kicking his ass, and it's like he had to regroup, and he uh, went after the knee, which not only cut him down to size, but then it also helps negate the Claymore, possibly, because they really sold the Claymore as, like, it's a wrap. I mean, granted, Brock kicked out of a few, but he's really the only one. Um, So it's for for a finisher in 2020, it's mostly protected. Um, you know, and then it, things got, you know, once uh, Drew, like, made his rally, things got really good back and forth. I loved him busting out Future Shock. Like, oh, I'm not, you know, I haven't been able to put this guy away yet. Let me try something from my old days. Uh, you know, that was really cool. I like that he only kicked out of the one curb stomp. It wasn't 11, like when Seth first was Bray. And then the, uh, the, the finish, the last, like, few seconds was great where, you know, Drew avoids the curb stomp the second time, hits the Glasgow kiss, and then gets a super kick, and then hits the uh, Claymore. Just fan, uh, just great wrestling. Um, like you said, it didn't go too long. They went a little over that threshold we were talking about, but they made it entertaining. They're two very good wrestlers. Um, just very, just just really fucking good. Uh, that Spider German spot was nuts. Like it just came off really well. Yeah, Drew's such a freak sometimes with some of the shit he can do. And um, yeah, I definitely thought this was the best thing on the card as well. I, I greatly enjoyed it. I thought it was just a great competitive world title match. And I didn't think they were going to take the title off of Drew here. I didn't think they yeah. were going to have him lose. But 
I do think they teased it well enough that I almost thought they might. I was like, are they actually going to fucking pull the switch? I actually thought about it. And that is a success to me. I mean, so it's a great wrestling match. They were able to do that. I thought both of them found success in the empty arena setting, but all I can think of down to home stretch, and this is not a criticism of the match by any means, but all I could think of was, man, that closing stretch in front of a fucking crowd, Kev, I yeah. think that would have killed it in front of a crowd because that was really good down to stretch. Yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, we talk about New Japan known for their great finishing stretches, and uh, this would have been like right up there with one of them. Uh, it wasn't overdone. It was just the right amount of like back and forth and yeah it would have got a great response yeah so that's like like i said if you're asking one negative of that match it's just the fact that they didn't have a crowd because i i think that would have got over really big but yeah um i really really enjoyed this match and again you, you know you like i said you can break that 15 minute threshold if you have the right guys Mm-hmm. But but again, you don't want to go too far past it, I think. But yeah, these guys did a really, really great job with the time they had. I really enjoyed it. Afterwards, Drew offers the big handshake, and Seth actually accepts it, and he even gives him a little thank you. Yeah, I'm a little uh, wonder. I wonder where that's where that's leading to. I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, we will we will see. Maybe Seth this goes fucking nuts and starts making people drink Kool Aid on Mondays, but we'll see. Maybe. Um, then our truth was interviewed and about his <laughs> match with Lashley, and he said, "Man, MVP was tough. He's uh, he's lost a lot, of, or he gained a lot of weight, or lost a lot of weight, and but he was happy he beat him. And then he revealed that he misses his uh, his baby, his twenty four seven title, and realized that he w- decided that he was going to go and get it back, even if he had to sack Tom Brady to do it." If they can figure out a way to book R2 versus Tom Brady. In a t- like, what if Tom Brady was the 24-7 title? R-Truth <laughs> uh, is a national treasure, though. It's, he's, yeah. Oh, he's timeless. So that led to the main event, which were the dueling Money in the Bank ladder matches happening at the same time filmed at the WWE headquarters, Stanford, Connecticut. Everybody arrives in the lobby except for Asuka. They go to start the match, and all of a sudden you realize Asuka is dancing on the second level and <laughs> fucking just dives onto everybody. I love that she had to do a little dance first while she yelled at everybody. And Yeah, because she's Asuka. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she's great. And they're, they're brawling in the weight room, and AJ Styles gets trapped under like the bench press bar with a like, lot of weight on it from Otis. They, we get a Scooby-Doo chase into the bathroom and our first cameo of the evening, which was Brother Love coming out of the shitter. Yeah. Um, I like the more, like, they did a few of these cameos. I like the casual one. Like, you could, be, like, um, first of all, I just, just to get out of the way, I really like the idea that old wrestling characters just live at WWE headquarters. Yeah, like, Brother Love this whole time has just been there. So, like, him coming out of the bathroom was cool. There's uh, the upcoming uh, cameo just felt like some of them felt way too forced. Um, but yeah, the brother love, I don't really like brother love, but thank God didn't have him talk. Just have him show up like, Oh shit, brother love. That's kind of cool. And yeah, just a lot of fun stuff going on here. Yeah. So Oscar, uh, after she dove on the women, she was able to escape into the elevator and started climbing up into the building. The men are brawling. We get a doink cameo. Forced one. Yeah. It's just weird. He's magically hiding behind a chair and he just pops up and leaves and, we get a big brawl. Um, the women are brawling in like a boardroom. 
And it ends with Dana Brooke laying out Nia Jax with a chair shot, and she sees a briefcase hanging from the ceiling. So Dana is an idiot and climbs on the table yep. and gets it and thinks she won. Which, so there's... Go ahead. You know, I was going to say, which leads to Stephanie McMahon, who is totally not in the same room as her, yep. <laughs> <laughs> arriving to tell her it was the wrong case and then told her to clean up Nia Jax's drool because Stephanie McMahon has to run everybody down. Yeah, and it's one of those things where uh, this was like 100% a fourth cameo. You could have found a more natural way to have, you know, Stephanie show up, even if it's just her like walking by, like if she's working there, like what they do coming up with Vince. Um, but Dana Brooke just came up looking like a total idiot. Like, first of all, you know that the match ends on the roof, not in this room. Secondly, there's looks like there's money in there. Like, you know, you don't get money for this. Third of all, Stephanie explains this briefcase being in this room as it's the money in the bank conference room, which is like, you want me to believe that there's a designated conference room to talk money in the bank all year round. And they put a money in the bank briefcase over the thing just every day. It's it's so like way out there. If, and then I do want to. I was going to say, if I was Dana, I would have checked to see if the money was real and then I would have bailed on the match. Exactly. Um, I do just real quick want to talk about the thing that came right after. Carmella uses her Money in the Bank winning photo, which is on the wall, to like break the pic- the giant picture over Dana Brooks' head. She moonwalks out. And then in one of the funniest moments of the whole thing, as she turns the corner, the camera cuts perfectly and Lacey Evans knocks her out with the woman's right. And it's one of those things where there would be, you know, when they try to force the comedy, like the Stephanie thing and stuff, it doesn't work. But when they do it unintentionally, like they just did a camera cut to a close up of Lacey Evans punching her. And that was way funnier to me than anything else that they were throwing out there. It was because she fucking wrecked her with that. It was, it was, I'm like, when Carmela, when Carmela comes back a few minutes later, I'm like, why is she back? Like you got knocked out. AJ Styles is having uh, like PTSD. He's having post-traumatic syndrome from the mm-hmm. Undertaker match. He starts having flashbacks to the Boneyard Alistair Black attacks him as AJ Styles apparently finds the Undertaker's office at Titan Towers because it's a creepy room with a coffin and like smoke and shit in it. Alistair Black kicks his ass and locks him in there and poor AJ is just freaking out. Yeah, I don't also don't get like AJ Styles gets trapped underneath the barbell. We don't see him get out for that. He just shows up later in the match. Then he's in this room, which he's screaming. I'm like, I don't think Alistair Black locked it. And then he just shows up later again. I'm like, are we is this just a mystery? It's like GTV, we're never gonna know how AJ got out of these situations. It was odd. Then we got a Paul Heyman cameo, which led to a giant food fight because he was eating. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Vince thought that was funny. Ha ha, Paul's yeah. fat. Yep, and Otis, uh, you know, with the food and just, yeah, and that's all Vince. He also, Otis also had an odd stare down with Nia Jax during this food fight. The best part of the food fight was Shayna Baszler choking out Rey Mysterio. <laughs> I was in tears here. Like, it was so funny because everybody's just fighting, you know, men are fighting men, women fighting women, and then she just grabs him in a choke. And I'm like, why didn't you let him go? Why are you still choking Rey Mysterio? Poor Ray. It was not a good <laughs> night for Ray, as we'll find out later. But yeah, it was not. Nia tried to kill Dana Brooke by throwing her into a Coke machine, and then poor Carmella, as if her night wasn't bad enough, took a Nia Jax powerbomb through the catering table. Which, two things about that. One, if you look closely, Carmella's smiling the whole time, like she's laughing on her way up into the powerbomb. And then two, we've seen Nia Jax wrestle. That's probably a very dangerous powerbomb. Yeah. And Carmella might be hurt. 
Otis has his weird face off with Naya, and he, then he runs away and he finds the kitchen and he finds pies and it's Otis and ha ha, yeah. he's fat. So he wants to eat. And then we get a big Johnny cameo. Yeah. <laughs> and he gets a pie in the face. We got all kind of shit going on with everybody running around the building and then they eventually brawl into Vince McMahon's office as AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan are battling. And it was so weird. Yeah. And of course it's Vince's office, so Vince is there. Theme music included. Yeah. And he basically kicks them out and they quickly apologize and fix all of his chairs and close the door as they leave and then they argue about being bitches and leaving, and they end up fighting with Corbin and shit. And, and it was just, the Vince thing was weird because it's like, I thought they were going to go with something like funny or whatever, and he just kicks them out and then rubs his hands weird, like awkwardly with Purell. Like, Vince is just a weird, awkward person. Yeah. And then he sits down and turns away from the desk to write something on the table, like the behind his desk. I'm like... What is happening right now? I will say that Vince sanitizing his hands may be the most current angle he's done in years, though. Absolutely. He is on the on the pulse with that one. So they all start finally brawling up to the roof. And it's, you know, the women are brawling and Asuka and Lacey and Nia are all fighting. Real quick before you get there, because, you know, we, we talked about how Carmella basically got eliminated by getting powerbombed. I don't know what happened to Shayna Baszler. Um, but Dana Brooke slips and falls while running because <laughs> there's like somebody mopping and i was like why did they just have why is dana brooke the idiot in this match like and i just i felt so bad for her she just doesn't even come back like that eliminated her yeah carmella may have died on that power bomb but she didn't die as bad as some other people yeah <laughs> so oscar eventually starts climbing this ladder and she looks like she's gonna win and king corbin arrives he's the first man up there so he gets in the ring and he starts climbing with Oscar, and Oscar just basically bitch slaps him and knocks him off the ladder. So she wins the women's money in the bank match. And first of all, she is not only a goddess for being Oscar, but she wins money in the bank. And I love her because she stopped King Corbin from winning. And that's the, it. Was funny, you know. The thing was like, why, like. I get her stopping him because, like, he gets up and he could have just timed the ladder and been like, what's up, Oscar? I'm going to take this my briefcase down. He goes up and, like, swipes at her. And it's like, why are you bothering her? There's two briefcases, dude. Well, like, obviously he, he had a death wish. Apparently. Um, I think Oscar was the right choice to win. Um, I'll say it about both sides of the match, kind of, but or especially on the woman's side. It was so much fun early on because it was just this wacky zany like, like you got Oscar closing the elevator door on everybody and then the elevator camp showing her dancing alone in the elevator and it's just so many like fun little things like that and then once they got to the roof it kind of stopped being fun and was like kind of anticlimactic like oh okay cool Oscar won I'm happy that she won you know she was the best choice to me and there's a lot of fun to be had with her with the briefcase but it was like why was it just her Naya and Lacey and you know it just it was it didn't work for me at the end yeah, Shayna apparently stopped and got a Coke at that machine that uh, Dana got yeah, apparently. into. And she was tired from choking out Ray, didn't feel like climbing the steps. The knees were getting bad. She's in her late 30s. And, um, yes. yeah, Carmella How did she choke out Ray and get taken out? Yeah, and then again, Carmella was dead in a pile of catering food. And, you know, I, mm. I, who the hell knows? And So anyway, Corbin gets taken out. Otis arrives. 
And in another truly Vince McMahon moment, we have to do the SmackDown moment again where he tries to climb the ladder. But ha ha ha, Otis is fat and the ladder breaks. Also, you can tell he stomped on the rung. Like, it's not like he casually climbed. First of all, like, him and Nia Jax should have kind of the same effect on the ladder. Like, not to say anything about Nia being bigger, but she does weigh, I think they announced her like a two something. And I mean, granted, Otis is bigger, but you know, it's like they both are the big people in their match. And it's like, why do you have to make these jokes and stuff? Like, you don't need, you could have just had Otis climb and maybe, I don't know, like he, he falls or because he's kind of a goof, you know? Like, it doesn't have to be, oh, well, Otis is fat. We haven't established that seven times already in this match. Yeah, so the men are all brawling on the roof, and then King Corbin commits a double homicide on Worldwide Pay-Per-View by chucking Ray off the roof, and then Aleister Black. He, like, this man literally murdered his co-workers. He is the best heel in the business. But, I mean, plus, if we go back to the WrestleMania build, he tried to kill Elias. There you go. See, that's what we need. He's been watching Lucha Underground. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> By the way, you know... He heard the podcast. That's right. You know, Steve and I joked about this. You do realize that John Moxley is now the lineal Lucha Underground champion because he beat Jake Hager. He is. Oh. You know, my friend once did that with, uh, you know, like just uh, a lineal championship. Yeah. He did it with... And it took him like a while to figure this out because he went through all the house show results and everything, but he did the custody of Dominic like championship. <laughs> so like after Ray won the ladder match, Ray's next loss. And he did it all the way up to like, I think at some point Jinder Mahal was custody of Dominic. And it was just, it, he like, I saw the list. It was the most ridiculous thing ever. I wonder if I can get it from him again, but he literally was like, I just spent, I was bored. I spent like the last few hours doing this. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so it comes down. We got, um, AJ Styles and we got Corbin fighting over this um, stuff and Daniel Bryan gets involved, he gets taken out and they start well, so they're all battling over the la- the case and they pull it down at the same time Elias returns and takes out Corbin, the briefcase kind of pops in the air and falls down into the loving hands of Otis Mm-hmm. And Otis has won the Money in the Bank ladder match. He did it for his peach, Mandy. Yep. And I will say this. First of all, this is like different from the Boneyard because I have absolutely no idea how to assign a rating to something like this because it's two matches going on at the same time. And it's two different finishes. So I don't know how to quantify so much of a rating. I will say this. We got two unexpected winners because I did not think they would go with Oscar because I thought they would go away from her because it seems like that's what they do. I did not think Otis would win. I was pretty sure AJ was going to win. So we got unexpected winners. And I will say this, man. I was entertained overall, and I, I guess I would call it good if you want a clarification on what I would think it is. Yeah, I pretty much the same thing. I was looking at this, and I was like, I have no idea how to rate this. You know, the Boneyard match felt more like a, granted it was, you know, goofy and stuff, but it was like, you could tell there was a start and then finish. And there was here too, but it was just two matches going on. They'd cut away for like several minutes from one to the other. It's a lot. Um, but like you said, I would entertain throughout. I did, I had concerns that I was like, they might try to do this for like an hour and a half, but they only did it for like 25 minutes. Um, I do think I could have used a little more of it. Like, you know, before they got, like, it felt like there were so many fun, like goofy things that they did. And then they rushed to the roof, and once they got there, it was like, we got to get to the finish. 
Um, but overall, just an enjoyable match. Like, of the cinematic matches that they've done so far, I've liked all of them. Like, I like the Firefly Funhouse. I like the Boneyard match. I like this. Um, I don't know if you would consider the Gargano Chapel one cinematic. Uh, I didn't really like that. Um, but for the most part, they're, they're getting these right. Like, do something creative and fun and outside of the box when you have to in these situations. You know, like, yeah, the ladder match itself is always a blast, but we've seen so many money in the bank ladder matches at this point that doing something completely different and goofy and off the wall was like, it was a welcome change. It was, and that's the thing. Like I said, I wasn't sure what to think going in because it was one of these things to where, hey, maybe this will be Boneyard great, or maybe it'll just be a mess because of the 12 people involved and trying to do them together. So it was like, I didn't know what to expect was hoping for the best, obviously. And I, 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 maybe we didn't get quite the best, but we ended up with something that was good and entertaining. And I appreciate that. And like you said too, we have seen so many money in the bank ladder matches and WWE has actually done a lot of ladder matches period in the last year. So, yeah, or years. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, especially in this last calendar year, it's been a lot. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was a refreshing change. And again, in this quote-unquote pandemic era, whatever you want to call it, you need to try to do some different things. You need to try to do tournaments on TV. You need to do something like this. You just need to break it up a little bit. So, it's enjoyable. And the main pay-per-view was two and a half hours long. What a treat. I remember I'm watching this and I was, you know, just saying, uh, I was like, yeah, I'll probably be done with this around, you know, the show will be done around 10 something, maybe 11 something. And then I'll podcast for a while and then I'm probably going to go to bed and it ended at 10 at 925. And I was like, what is happening? I know I was absolutely shocked. So that is WWE Money in the Bank 2020. Certainly a unique show, Kevin. End of the day, final thoughts and a score out of 10. Uh, it, like you said, because it's tough to rate the final matches, it's kind of tough to rate the whole show. Um, but overall, I enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't anything blow away. Uh, Seth Drew's really like the only, you know, must-see great match. But I do think the Money in the Bank match is worth, or I guess matches. I don't know how you say it. Um, <laughs> the Money in the Bank stuff is worth watching because there's a lot of fun stuff in it. It does suffer from some of the classic WWE. We're trying so hard to be funny. It's such good shit, pal. Um, and it just, those things miss the mark, but for the most part, it's enjoyable. And you throw in a show that goes two hours and 20 minutes. Plus, if you want to throw in the kickoff match, like 15 minutes, that's a really easy, you know, it's like a basic show. It's nice. It it flowed easily. It does hit that low in the middle, but it's mostly an enjoyable show. I'd go, I guess like a six, six and a half out of 10. And, um, I do want to point out somebody on my timeline was like, that's easily like one of the five worst wrestling like WWE pay-per-views of all time. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, granted, it's not amazing, but like there's been some really shitty pay-per-views in history. Yeah, um, you're, you're obviously not watching a lot of product. You think this is like the <laughs> worst thing they've ever done. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, I will say, you know, you know what they could have done in the Vince office, by the way, which mm-hmm. would have been funny. They should have had the Devil Vince puppet and they should have brought back Puppet H. Oh, yeah. That, that would have been, been funny for the chairs to turn around and the puppets be there. I would have laughed at that, actually. That would have been good. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I mean. It's like sometimes they get there. It's when they, it's like 
they have accidental comedy sometimes, and then when they try to get like the comedy writers in there, Vince comes up with his idea. It's like you realize this isn't funny, right? Because, I mean, you just could have done the puppets, and you didn't even have to have them talk, because you could have Brian and AJ brawling, and the fucking chairs turn around, the puppets are there, and then you just could have had them back out, like, creeped out, like, people that are free yep. of clowns and shit, like, mm-hmm. we're just getting the fuck just out of here. Just back out. We're in, fu- we're in like, puppet land, dude. Nothing not good gonna, can happen. Yeah, like, we're not gonna talk about this anymore, ever yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, they walk out, this never happened, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yep. Money in the Bank here, 2020. It started off well, showed promise. We got that kind of middle of the pack WWE pay per view lull. Thankfully, it rebounds with Drew and Seth, which I thought was pretty great. And the Money in the Bank deal is really different. I fully understand that there are going to be people that absolutely loathe it. Some will probably love it. I again, I will say I was entertained by it. I thought overall it was a solidly entertainment show, solidly entertaining show with. A pleasantly short run time, man, like we talked about. I mean, again, like you said, you had that pre-show match. We're going like 245. We're under three. Yeah, hours. and that's that's very like easy to, you know, digest. So I, I went six five on the show. I, I again I was not having a lot of high hopes going into this, I'm not gonna lie. I was thinking it had I thought to me the Tamina match would have been a lot worse. I thought the money in the bank match had a chance to be a mess. And mm-hmm. it wasn't. So, I mean, again, man, I mean, it's hard. And I'll say this, they tried. I enjoyed the Jeff Hardy match. I really enjoyed the tag match. And again, Drew and Seth is a, a great match. Empty arena or not. So, and I, I kind of agree with you in terms of WWE, second best probably. I liked um, I liked Rhea and Charlotte better. I liked this. And then... um. I did like the WrestleMania ladder match. I thought those guys worked really hard. Yeah, that was, that was really good too, yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's in terms of just a pure wrestling match, empty arena-wise, I thought that they did extremely well. And mm-hmm. you really couldn't have asked more from those guys under these circumstances. So they made, I think, the best out of it. And again, as you said, Kev, I think it was it's okay to mix up the money in the bank stuff because we've seen yeah. so much of it. And I didn't mind it. I don't want to see it all the time. I don't need to see it every year. But under these circumstances, I'll take it. I'll I'll take them trying something different. So again, I think it's an enjoyable show. I didn't hate watching it. And again, short runtime. We love it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I can you know now. I mean, granted, you know, two hours and forty five minutes was the standard. But so many pay per views, whether it's WWE, AEW, New Japan, all try to go three and a half, four hours, sometimes five, and it's like. You can just get in there, you know, give us a, you know, just on the three hour show and just go home. Like, it's fine. That's that's a good time. And the thing is, too, is once you passed four, you have to have a really, really great fucking show to keep the average person's attention. For sure. Like, it's different for us because we review shows. But still, I mean, even when we're reviewing, like when you get those seven hour manias, man, it's like, guys, come on. There's a reason, like, movies barely go over, you know, like, do you rarely see movies past three hours? Because it's hard to hold anybody's attention for that long. Yeah, all I can think of is, like, when I watch those long mania shows, sometimes it's, you ever see Happy Gilmore? Why don't you go home? (laughs) And the other joke I have is, I don't know if you remember any old ROH stuff, the old joke was when there was a, uh, a match that was going too long or not going well, Gabe would sit in the back and he would just look and go, send Dark City. 
And so fucking Dark City Fight Club will go out and kill some geeks. <laughs> and that's what I actually typed that during the uh, Orton Edge match during Mania. <laughs> yeah, put that you on send Dark City at that point. <laughs> Something. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, man, again, it could have been a lot worse. I don't think you could have asked for a lot more. I know the cinematic stuff is very de- de- um, divisive for a lot of people, but I just appreciate that they're trying something different because how many times do we talk about WWE never going out of their comfort zone? Mm-hmm. So, but that'll wrap up the Money in the Bank uh, coverage. Kev, go ahead and give uh, the shout out to your Patreon and Twitter and everything. And... Of course, of course. Uh, it's going to be uh, Twitter. It's at the Kevsta, T A G underscore K E V S T A A A. And the Patreon's the same thing, patreon.com slash the Kevsta. Uh, there'll be a new uh, entry into the top 500 matches of the 2010s this week. Um, got some brand split war stuff coming up and, uh, another retro review this week. So it's going to be some good stuff there. Very good. And stay tuned for next Sunday, actually, because Kevin will be back. We have recorded a retro podcast and on this, um, show, we're going to talk Ultima Lucha Dose all three nights and then mm-hmm. take our first look back at the NXT Brooklyn events. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's going to be fun to look back at all those NXT Brooklyn's. So it is a good time. We had a lot of fun recording, so that'll be next Sunday. And everybody, go ahead and stay tuned, because in a couple moments, Jerome Cusson is going to join me, and we're going to talk Dark Side of the Ring, Cocaine and Cowboy Boots, the Herb Abrams story. All right, and closing up this weekend's show, it is time to talk Dark Side of the Ring, which means my good friend Jerome Cusson is back. Jerome, how are you, my friend? Uh, I have never seen so much fake cocaine be snorted in a reenactment as I did on this most recent episode of Dark Side of the Ring. I don't know if you could tell if the acoustics are different, Larry, but I'm now in my Chicago abode. I am no longer in Memphis, Tennessee. I escaped the clutches of the South to come home to the Midwest. Well, there you go. Yeah, I haven't seen that much fake cocaine since Scarface, man. It's a lot of fake cocaine, and we're getting more fake cocaine when we talk about the Road Warriors next week. But I guess they they had to close the set for these reenactments because they were so lewd in nature. I guess so. Jesus, it's this this show we're going to talk about. By the way, everybody, again, Dark Side of the Ring. We're talking the latest episodes titled "Cocaine and Cowboy Boots." The Herb Abrams story, and the title is just not a fun play on words. It is certainly it is certainly not a play on words. It is, in fact, we are talking about a man who did a lot of cocaine, oftentimes only wearing cowboy boots. Yes, completely naked sans cowboy boots. I mean, it's, it's what Herb Abrams was, and this is... This is a show, and it's like, it's one of those shows that, like, if you're not ready for it, you need to be ready for it. Just, I don't know how else to put it. This is, and I don't mean it like in a, it's a deep emotional ride like the Chris Benoit story. This is, this is a show that just dives into some stuff that you may not be ready for. But the background is basically this, is the 1980s end, the WWF is obviously in control of the wrestling business. Vince has raided the top stars. Obviously, there is NWA, WCW, there's Turner involved, but a gentleman named Herb Abrams 
decides he wants to get into the wrestling business. And he creates a company called the UWF. And we have such guests on this show as Mick Foley, Sunny Beach, The Wild Thing, Stevie Ray, who were involved in the UWF. And um, the UWF was born out of a... Basically, it started at a fan fest convention ran by John Arizi, who also joins our show. Herb Abrams decides he is going to start a wrestling company. Now, Herb Abrams has no background in the wrestling business. Most people had no idea what he did for a living. But according to Mick Foley, a highly charismatic individual that, you know, basically he was the ultimate worker, Jerome. Yeah, I think this season has featured a number of workers, but Mick Foley told us that he was charismatic I didn't really see a lot of that. And maybe it's because the footage is really grainy and it's very cartoony, but I don't, I never got that sense that he was very charismatic. And maybe that's just something that you have to be there in person to see. Sometimes it's not something that comes through on camera, but I I didn't really get the impression to me. He comes off like a complete goof throughout most of the footage And the fact that he's talking about wanting to incorporate Bruiser Brody, who's dead, and the incarcerated Blackjack Mulligan, I mean, that's not not something that he was able to do. And it reminds me of the Simpsons episode, Homer at the Bat, where Mr. Burns suggests using all of these very, very old and very dead baseball players, and Smithers has to quietly tell him that all those players are dead so that that's very much what that reminded me of and i don't know it's it's one of those things where so i i think something got a little bit lost in translation but i think what you have here is you have somebody again like so many so many others who is clearly a fan of professional wrestling who happens to also have a lot of money how he came to get in with that money is uh, highly questionable, but I think it's it's really fascinating to me that you have a guy who nobody knows anything about. They don't know what he does. They don't really talk about who he is a fan of necessarily in wrestling. Was he a WWF fan? Was he an NWA fan? Was he going to the Twin Cities in AWA territory? Like, there's no background on this guy, and he seemingly comes out of nowhere, and that's kind of how myths get told in pro wrestling, is that this guy is seemingly just comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, he's got a wrestling company with legitimate stars. I disagree with Mick Foley. Mick Foley at one point says this company had more star power than the WWF. And unfortunately, Mick Foley has taken a lot of chair shots in his life. So I am not sure that he is always the most credible person when it comes to these kinds of topics. But he certainly he certainly was legit. Bringing in Paul Orndorff. Poor Dr. Death, once again, relegated to a side conversation in a goofball story. These are guys who are credible, and it's it's unfortunate that it really never went anywhere. But ultimately, this really isn't about the UWF. This is about Herb Abrams. Yeah. My guess is what Foley meant by he was charismatic is I think he means in that Paul Heyman way in that he was able to make people believe in him. And because, like, you hear Foley where 
you know, I mean, I was thinking about talking about this at the end, but I don't know if you agree. Mick Foley comes off extremely naive through this whole thing. Um, Talking about, like you just mentioned, that um, they had more star power than the WWF. And just like Mick Foley, even to this day as he's telling the story, even has like a a feeling of belief still that it would have worked. And Which is it bizarre. seemed like, and it seems like he was all in at the time, obviously. And this is 1990, 1991 when this is coming about, which is very young and full his career. But still, I mean, he seems like he's almost all in on it. Still, it comes off very odd, as you mentioned, which is, chair shots. <laughs> which is bizarre because he's usually pretty clear-eyed about certain things. I mean, there are certain things that I think he's a little delusional on, but I think that's a lot of it's about his own career. It's not necessarily about assessing situations. Like, if you read his books and you read the way that he speaks about WCW and in the multiple runs that he had with that company, it's very clear that he has a good sense of what's going on in WCW. He understands that it's kind of a mess and that there are many, many problems with this company. And so I I don't think that he has necessarily done this all the time, but it was just bizarre to me that in this particular situation, he's not really clear eyed about UWF, which is fitting because Herb Abrams was never clear eyed either. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And again, it's, it's fascinating because they start this, they do the announcement at the John Arese convention, and as you mentioned, they Herb Abrams announces, you know, Dan Spivey and Paul Orndorff, Doctor Death, McFoley, Bob Orton, and then he announces Blackjack Mulligan is going to book the territory. And the problem with that was, as you mentioned, he is in prison. And then he says Bruiser Brody is coming in, and that's problematic because he's been dead for a year. So. We're five minutes into this program, and I'm like, oh my, it's like, it's so off the rails already, it's amazing. I just, I, I'm, I'm in love with this show just for how crazy everything is right now. And as I mentioned, nobody knows what Herb Abrams does for a living. And that leads to Lenny Douge joining the show, who was a former NBC employee and a friend of Herb Abrams. And he reveals that he owned a series of shops that sold clothing to oversized women. That was his business background. And I would be willing to put to put a pretty decent sized amount of money that he was laundering money for someone, and that business was a front. Oh, uh, you think that is? <laughs> That is exactly how it came across to me. He was absolutely laundering money for somebody connected, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and it's amazing. But Lenny Douge, he was like he worked at NBC. He did editing and stuff like that, and he gets involved in the UWF, which debuts in October 1991. And um, again, they had some stars, they had some names, and Herb Abrams at first is kind of looking to do his own carve out his own niche until he has an actual meeting with Vince McMahon. And his grand plan is that he wants to promote the West Coast for Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon tells him to fuck off. And Abrams decides that he is going to try to expand and compete with the WWF, which was the first of many mistakes. Yeah, at this point, the WWF is is kind of a juggernaut. And 
the only company that was really capable of competition was the NWA slash WCW. And even they didn't seem to be in a very good uh, position to do that. I think what amuses me the most is the idea that Herb Abrams just wanted to needle Vince McMahon and shut the company down. Like, there's a part of me that finds it humorous because there's no fucking way that this is going to happen. And just the way that he tries to troll Vince McMahon, I give him a lot of credit, like bringing in Andre the Giant and making Vince McMahon pay Andre the Giant to not wrestle. And the documentary doesn't mention it, but Honky Tonk Man and Rick Rude are kind of pseudo-associated with the UWF at multiple points, and they're kind of used to needle Vince McMahon. So it is tremendously entertaining, although completely unrealistic, that Herb Abrams wants to be a thorn in Vince McMahon's side. It's, oh, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's almost amazing. It's just, so we have a gentleman that was a manager in the UWF. He was the colonel. Talks about being brought in for a meeting with Herb Abrams and hearing about a money mark out in California. So he goes for this meeting. He's put up in a Beverly Hills suite. And again, he's not working for the UWF, but he's being treated like royalty. He's visiting and Herb Abrams arrives. Herbie is not alone though, Jerome. He has call girls with him. And according to the colonel, who is from the Carolinas, these are not snaggletooth South Carolina um, women. These were Hollywood honeys. Leading to Herb Abrams breaking out the cocaine. And the poor colonel, the southern boy, is freaking out, thinking that they're going to get busted at any point. And he explains that the, um, the long night turns into basically a live porn celebration. Marty Esber comes across as very naive in this statement because given where the location is, Beverly Hills, given the time period, the late 80s, early 90s, there are probably that is probably not even the first time that day that there was cocaine <laughs> and high class sex workers being called in in that hotel. Come on. There are probably multiple areas where that's going on. It happens all the time. Marty Esberg. And her babies were in no danger of being busted by the police. They're almost no danger. And the thing is, is like, my position on this kind of stuff generally is, like, I don't care that he's doing drugs. I don't care that sex workers, that, that they're paying for sex like that. Like, I have no moral compass when it comes to that. Like, it doesn't really bother me. But, like, as long as nobody else is getting hurt, like, if somebody else is getting hurt, then that then I have a problem with it if like if a hotel worker gets injured or something like that then it's a problem but for me like like who cares like just enjoy the moment like if this is what you do this is what you do um, I'm a little bit more dubious of the cocaine and less sure of how I feel about that but get your freak on that's what I say when it comes to the uh, the sex workers he was just a poor southern boy Jerome he didn't know no better. <laughs> Apparently not, and uh, apparently he just—he did not have very nice things to say about the lovely women of South Carolina, which, Larry, this is your opportunity to defend those women. Well, he's from, like, a shitty part of South Carolina, so maybe over where he was, um, that was the point, but uh, there are some fine women where I live. I'll just put that out there. Especially the one that lives in your house with you, right? Obviously. Top of the list. But, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, make but sure, I mean seriously. Make sure she listens to the podcast yeah. now. But uh, no, man, it's 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 amazing. So 
they they show off the original UWF TV title, and when you have it closed up, it's basically you could see the F and the U on it. So they joked that it was uh, made to look like a big FU to Vince McMahon because Herb Abrams was constantly, as you mentioned, trying to piss off Vince and put him out of business. And this leads to, as you also mentioned, the the Andre the Giant angle, where they brought in Andre the Giant. He makes one appearance and does a rather incoherent interview. And then that leads to Vince McMahon basically calling Andre, bringing him back, and he puts a stop to that bullshit right quick and in a hurry, leading to Herb Abrams being totally embarrassed, and Mick Foley talks about how they were all excited because they had scored Andre the Giant, and then he was gone. Which just goes to show you, Vince McMahon, people always like to say, oh, Larry, you overreact. He doesn't hoard talent. He doesn't do things like that. Hello, did you miss the whole fucking 80s when he bought up the territories? And then there's this. Hello? So it's funny you mentioned that because this week I actually read The uh, the Death of the Territories, which is a pretty comprehensive book about how each territory around the country and around the world really just succumbed to Vince McMahon. And Vince McMahon, basically, it's the same O that Triple H has been is using with NXT. I don't understand how people can be this naive when it's literally history repeating itself from 35 years ago. It is. It truly boggles my mind that people don't understand that the same thing is happening as we speak, as compared to the events of 1983 and 1984. And yeah, Andre the Giant, he, I don't think he wrestled for the WWF in 1991 or 92. I know he was, he was using a cane. I, he was a bushwhackers manager. I think he did do appearances in Mexico and Japan, but, Vince McMahon was never going to put him in the ring again because he was in terrible shape at this point. Yeah, and again, it was just a power play because Vince could. He was going to make sure that nobody could have his toy because Andre was one of his biggest toys. He couldn't have it, so it's... uh, Yeah, I always crack up though when people are like, oh, Vince doesn't do that shit. It's like, oh my God, go read a goddamn book, you know? So... This leads to, again, Herb Abrams is embarrassed, and he gets very desperate with his programming. And if you've ever seen UWF programming, it's been on ESPN in the past. You're not missing anything. Pretty much at the time, the only good things on UWF television, in all honesty, were Mick Foley and Dr. Death Steve Williams, and that was about it, and they were very rare and in between. But you have Herb Abrams, who does... Nothing but run overbooked shitty finishes. He gimmicks things up to an insane degree. Basically for his own entertainment because, he again, he did not have a wrestling background. And basically everybody agrees he did not have the knowledge to succeed in the business. Yeah, I mean, it's really obvious. It's the story of so many people. There, there are a lot of people who have money who are wrestling fans, who have come into this uh, this industry, and they pay a lot of money, and then they believe their own hype, they believe their own bullshit, and they get more creatively involved. Many of them eventually appear on camera, and you see what happens. There's so many examples of this. 
I think Dixie Carter on TNA is a recent example of this, one that some of your audience is probably familiar with, but Herb Abrams is certainly not an exception to this rule. I think Vince Russo, even though he wasn't a money person, I think he certainly fell into this trap as well. And, I mean, Joe Coff, even to an extent for Ring of Honor, kind of did it too, right? Yeah, he, he he wasn't never on a lot, but he made a couple appearances. Um, thankfully, it did not become a, a a regular thing, and people were worried at first in New Japan when uh, Harold Maine took over because they did an angle with him on a show, and everybody's like, "Oh Christ, no, not New Japan too!" And then like he never did it again because they got a lot of negative feedback, and he was like, "Yeah, he's like that was a one time thing." He's like, "You won't be seeing me on TV again." And to his credit, he never came back on at any other angle. So, but yeah, as you uh, said, it's it's nothing new in the world of wrestling. It happens to a lot of people. I mean, I think this is not a unique story in pro wrestling. What makes it unique are the shenanigans that this guy was so over the top in his behavior, in his failure to book talent. And to fill arenas. I mean, my God, to run fucking Palmetto, Florida, of all places, which is an hour away from any major city. And thanks to my time being an FIP fan, I know the doldrums of the Florida Loop and NXT, the Largo Loop, so to speak. I still have never heard of Palmetto, Florida until this broadcast. It's amazing. So, obviously, business is not going well for Herb Abrams, despite the fact that he made UWF cookies, Herbie cookies, and was selling them. They lost TV. Uh, ironically enough, um, ECW uh, ended up with uh, basically their TV down the line, which really ironic because, you know, think about it. If Herb Abrams really wanted to, and he was really looking to get somebody that knew what they were doing, maybe he could have had a Paul Heyman. And he could have had his own Jewish person, which he's very famous for appreciating Jewish people. That's right. Um, so they decided they're going to go on pay-per-view for the beach brawl. Mick Foley thought this was going to be a breakthrough moment. But as you mentioned, it's held in Palmetto, Florida, which is an isolated city an hour away from any major city. And uh, his... You know, Herb Abrams' best buddy there is talking about how they he didn't think that they could sell out. And they did not sell out this building at all. It does horrible attendance. They're in Florida. Herb Abrams is partying it up. Just playing hard. Loving his coke. Partying around the clock. Gets in the bad shape. His buddy's talking about how he needs rehab. The building's essentially empty when they get there. A couple hundred people. Abrams claimed that somebody screwed up. He was all coked up throughout the evening. They proceed. They they have a horrible pay per view, and it's a financial disaster because the pay per view does approximately like I think the, the reports are it does around a thousand buys. Wasn't this a historically bad month for pay-per-views? Wasn't the 1991 Great American Bash, which is generally regarded as one of the worst pay-per-views of all time, wasn't that the same month as this one? It might have been. I do not remember offhand, but yeah, it's it wasn't good. No, 
and the WWF didn't have a King of the Ring or anything at that point, so they could not have joined in the the bad the bad pay per view run. But I mean, this show just looks really bad, and it's very clear that the man is just losing control of reality. And I mean, look, what you do on your own time is your own time, but you get to a certain point where you just can't function when you're doing that many drugs and you are living that lifestyle. What amused me though is the idea that he had very clearly had two bank accounts, one of which was for wrestling and one of which, one of which was for his own uh, personal use, so to speak. And I think that further lends credence to the idea that he was very clearly laundering money because that's what the other bank account was for. Exactly. So you got Mick Foley trying to stay positive here Checks are starting to bounce. The boys confront Herb Abrams. He's partying with naked women during the confrontation and basically going all Scarface on a pile of coke. It's, it, you know what? If it, if it wasn't pro wrestling, I probably wouldn't almost believe it because it seems like it's like a made up movie. But it's pro wrestling, so it's like it's so easy to believe all this. But Herb Abrams' sources start to dry up. He's personally falling apart. And, again, as Jerome said, the boys, they confront him and they want money. They need paid. And they eventually, somehow somebody gets a hold of the bank. And the bank reveals he has multiple accounts. One with basically nothing and one with millions of dollars. So, as Jerome said, he's pretty much laundering money. I think that's safe to say. And they also threatened to throw Herb Abrams off a fucking building to get their money. Which is very... I mean, I'm sure that's not the first time he's been... That's been threatened to him. I'm sure that there is a distinct possibility that this is something that happened multiple times in his life. So, um, but the the downward spiral continues because Herb Abrams is falling apart. He's trying to run some smaller shows to stay afloat. But... He's he's coked up all the time, and he's extremely paranoid. He keeps thinking his hotel rooms are bugged to the point that he would tear up furniture. Um, and, and then at one point, he tries to put one over on the wrong people um, with a uh, a lady of the night involved when thugs arrived. And this leads to Herb Abrams jumping out of a fucking window and running naked through the streets in his cowboy boots. I can't, can you imagine seeing this man leaping out of a window, coked up, covered in whatever substances he was covered in, and just seeing this in your in the line of sight? I can't even imagine in an era of social media where everything is on tape and everything is filmed on people's phones. Like, just imagine if this is 2020, there's an outside possibility that this is caught on tape or video or whatever, and we see this. Can you imagine if this, if somebody in the wrestling business did something like this now? There would be, the news cycle would literally melt from the absurdity. Dude, if that happened like one night, that's like a month worth of hits. Yeah, Let me I mean, tell just <laughs> for the video alone, I mean, it's just because you've got, you're going to have the video, you're going to have the reaction, you're going to have the a quote-unquote apology, then you're going to have the reaction to the apology, and then, the, like, it's just going to, it's then you're going to be eating your own tail. It, it, it's amazing. So, as we mentioned, um, Herb is just spiraling out of control. The UWF is dying. 
And it is at this point that Vince McMahon puts on WrestleMania 9. Which is also a historically bad pay-per-view. Yes, it is fucking horrible. And this gives Herb Abrams the idea that wrestling can work in Vegas. So he goes back to, and he gets the fucking MGM Grand of all places. And he's going to put on the Blackjack Brawl. He spends tons of money on advertising and big names. Mick Foley talks about how it feels like a big deal. He's brought up to Herb's suite. And Herb Abrams brings out a pair of, like, gold cowboy boots. Which are apparently going to be the big draw of the Blackjack Brawl. And even Mick Foley, no no matter how naive he was at certain points of the show, was not naive enough to believe that the cowboy boots were going to be a draw in any way. It's amazing. There are a lot of people who think Vegas is a great place to draw for wrestling. And it really is very difficult to do. You have to do something very specific, very special. I think the only company that has really been able to do it is AEW. And that's because they surround it with a convention. They've turned it into something where it's a weekend and it's not necessarily just a show, but a lot of companies have gone to Vegas and it, it doesn't make for good TV. AWA did their TV there. And ROH. Never made- Ring of Honor would would go and run a pay-per-view and then tape TV the next night, and then, like, half the time the TV looked like shit because, like, they'd do a decent pay-per-view, like, audience, and then they'd do, like, half for TV. And even those audiences are not... They're not Ring of Honor's best audiences because you're kind of drawing from all over the place, and the West Coast doesn't tend to be as into shows as people on the East Coast. So Vegas is a very hard place to draw wrestling fans. And I know that they're going to have a lot more sports teams, but the Las Vegas Raiders, the appeal of the Las Vegas Raiders is going to be that everybody's going to go and see their favorite team. And of course they're going to be some Raiders fans, but it's more the idea of Vegas is a destination for other people from around the country to go to, to see football and wrestling. And it's much less about the locals at this point. And with this, with COVID-19, we'll see how Vegas changes with the football and the wrestling and all that stuff. But I mean, in theory, it should work because there are a lot of casinos and there are a lot of entertainment options. And there are people, as you know, Larry, when you go to Vegas, you are bleeding money. And there are a lot of people in Vegas who are desperate to get rid of their money as evidenced by the fact that Herb Abrams ran, ran the MGM Grand when he probably should have ran whatever Casino Ring of Honor runs now. Yeah, if there, if Sam's Town was alive back then, I don't know, maybe that's where he should have went. But just like the last pay-per-view, um, you're going to find this hard to believe, everybody. Herb Abrams is coked out of his fucking gourd during this entire show. And he is so coked up, Jerome... That in one point during the show, I mean, they they just talk about him being crazy on the mic all night. And at one point, Herb Abrams decides to yell out, let's hear it for the Jews. I mean, it's just unbelievable that this happened. And it's remarkable to think that on a show with Sid Vicious, that Herb Abrams was by far the least coherent person on the show. And obviously, we have... um, no problem with our Jewish brethren, but it just seems a little odd to yell out in the middle of a live wrestling show. I mean, I don't know, man. There's a lot Certainly of things you can not. yell out. 
<laughs> a lot of things you could yell out during a wrestling show, but let's hear it for the Jews is never crossed my mind. Wow. I mean, just wow. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an extraordinary story. And I certainly have some issues with the tone, but the idea of Herb Abrams just being able to exist on a day-to-day basis for as long as he did is absolutely remarkable to me because I mean, clearly he was connected with other people and clearly there was going to be a way for him to have some level of success um, just based on who he's connected with. But I mean, it was never going to be in wrestling. There was just no appetite for someone of his ilk and the talent that he was bringing in. The the only way that this is going to work is if you did something like ECW where you kind of manage the budget, you run some very small buildings, you don't run these giant arenas. And yeah, I mean, this this was never going to work. I'm just shocked that Herb Abrams made it to 41. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's it's obvious he went through some rehab because there's definitely footage of him. I don't he's sober. <laughs> I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, he's still Herb Abrams, but he's at least sober in that video they show. Yeah, I mean, it's it might be the most remarkable footage in the entire episode because he's coherent and he sounds like a normal person. Like, not you know what I mean by normal, like sober. Yeah. But going back to the show, Mick Foley talks about it, and um, probably a poor choice of words during this season, but he talks about that, I got to wrestle my idol, Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, not, not, not great. I definitely noticed that as well, and uh, I think Mick should have uh, reconsidered his choice of words, or perhaps watched a previous episode of Dark Side of the Ring. Um, so he talks about wrestling Snooka. They brawl throughout the building. The check didn't clear for the fucking match. Herb Abrams thought that this was a success. They drew 200 at the MGM Grand. I mean, this is a building that current day holds like 17,000. I think before they updated it, it would have held an easy 15 back then. But still, it's like. You're drawing 200, and Mick Foley tells a story about his debut wrestling match in Clarksburg, West Virginia, in an armory where he wrestled in front of 300 people. And 300 people in an armory is not bad. I mean, that's not Dude, a terrible Dude, in moment. an armory in Clarksburg, West Virginia, that's very good because Clarksburg, West Virginia was about 20 miles away from where I went to college. So I, mean, I know the area well. I wonder if that is the drop-dead lowest gate that has ever taken place at the MGM Grand. If you include boxing, UFC, AEW, that's got to be the worst draw they've ever had for an event, right? I mean, I would have to think so. I I can't imagine anything else would go that low. But Again, Herb Abrams is in this massive downward spiral. The lifestyle is taking a toll on him. He's falling apart. But in July of 1996, he looks to be rebounding a little bit. And this is where the video that we talked about is shown. He is in the office meeting with a friend. He's looking like he's turned a corner. He, I'm not going to say, I guess, not to be rude, it doesn't, he's not like so much normal because he's still Herb Abrams, but he seems coherent. He seems sober. And people were feeling optimistic about him until he disappears. And apparently this was nothing new because Herb would disappear for a day or three at a time. But he disappeared and 
On July 23rd, he resurfaces. And this is the the night that Herb Abrams dies. Police arrive at the UWF offices. They find him naked. Drugs are found on the premises. He has escorts with him. He had been destroying the office with a baseball bat and was covered in what they call a Vaseline-like substance and cocaine, chasing around the prostitutes. And about 90 minutes after his arrest, he dies from a massive coronary. Or so we think, right? Yeah, because there's... Because the, the documentary gets really weird at the end because on the one hand, they have a number of the talking heads that they had previously been, you know, interviewing and they all have various speculations on how he died. And it seems like everybody has some sort of a belief and none of the stories are consistent, but we get reenactments of all of them, which is kind of amusing. So on the one hand, you have this idea of the of the myth of Herb Abrams, this farcical human being whose life is coming to an end. And on the one hand, it's supposed to be like this funny thing of him dying. And I can understand that if you're going to go the dark comedy route. But then you have Lenny Lenny coming on and he talks about losing his best friend and then the documentary becomes very sad because uh, it's a human being who has who has passed away, and he succumbed to his drug habit essentially. So the documentary seems very conflicted on what they want their audience to feel. Do they want the audience to be laughing at this hysterical person, even though he has died, or do they want him to, or do they want people to feel bad because he had a drug habit? And I think that the inconsistency of tone is what makes this episode not necessarily work. I do not think Mick Foley was a good interview, which is weird because I think Mick Foley is somebody who is a, who is legendarily known for promos and being able to talk, but I don't, he did not really contribute a lot uh, on these proceedings. No. And you talk about the tone at the end. I mean, just let me give you guys like how weird this is. You have his best friend, just destroyed that Herb has died. And then I, is it, was it, uh, Steve, was it the wild thing dude that was like just in tears at the end because Herb Abrams gave him his big shot and he was so upset. And then you got like the fucking Colonel who's talking about, he believes that Herb Abrams faked his death because there was a story of a UWF branded indie show being ran and some little dude dressed in cowboy boots showed up and threw a fit and said he was Herb Abrams. So you have people doing a death conspiracy. You have his best friend broken up. You have one of the wrestlers who got his biggest shot broken up. And then you transition to Mick Foley asking, what would Herb Abrams do if he was alive? And Foley goes, well, first of all, I never believed he faked his death because he couldn't stay quiet for 30 years. But if he was alive, he'd be doing time. Which I'm not saying mixed wrong, but then it gets even more comedy because you have Brian Blair asking, you know, they ask him about Herb's death. And it's a great quote and it's funny, but again, the tone is so weird. He said, Herb Abrams died doing what he loved, cocaine and hookers. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's a great line. It's a great way to end things, but it's just it was it was a very strange ending to the show in particular. And I don't know. I think that this I think this was the topic that was always going to be very difficult to cover because on the surface it's got a lot there are a lot of hijinks involved and I mean it's cocaine and cowboy boots. I mean that's an easy sell, but the actual story itself I'm not sure if it's as entertaining to a layperson as perhaps the Chris Benoit and even the John, because with the John Stossel and David Schultz story, both of those gentlemen are still alive and it's a pretty cut and dry. It's not really a wrestling specific story. It's kind of more generalist. This is much more in the weeds of behind the scenes of what it's like to run a wrestling company. So this was always going to be very difficult to tell this story in a way that lay people would be able to understand it. And I'm not sure that it was totally successful. I mean, certainly I think this episode is entertaining because of the reenactments alone, but as an episode, this was definitely one of the weaker ones. Yeah. I find it really enjoyable and just, um, just the weird tonal shifts at the end. It's like, I, I just wish they would have stayed in one direction on it. Like, either keep keep it, like, kind of scandalous tabloid and just keep diving into all the shit. And it, it just felt really weird because, like, they're doing that and then, like, they're trying to make us feel bad for Herb Abrams. And they're, like, it goes back and forth kind of so many times down that closing stretch. It, I guess to equate it to a wrestling match, it was just, like, a really uneven finish. You know, it just uh, kind of threw it off for me. But it's it's an extremely entertaining show. I mean, it's, again, one of those stories that, like, if somebody told you a story like this in a normal life setting, you probably would think they were just full of shit. But in the world of professional wrestling, you can 100% believe that all this shit is true. Yeah, I mean, there's always a little bit of BS to when, I, when it comes to pro wrestling and who's really telling the truth, but Herb Abrams seems like a larger-than-life character, and even though he did not have a lot of uh, positive impact on the wrestling business, he was certainly very memorable because he got a 45-minute documentary on Vice, and this was watched by 246,000 people, which, in the grand scheme of TV, that's not a lot, but relative to the ratings for that network... 246,000 is a really good number. And I believe it's just behind the David Schultz and the Chris Benoit documentary ratings. So clearly people were interested in cocaine and cowboy boots. Exactly. So again, it's, um, I mean, it's definitely worth a watch. I agree with Jerome. It's overall, it's kind of one of the weaker ones just because I just think the production and the way they laid out a lot of the early season stuff was just much better done overall. But again, it's enjoyable. You're gonna hear some really wacky stories, um, and I agree with you on the McFoley thing. I was like, I was kind of honestly really disappointed in the McFoley stuff because I was, I didn't think he offered a lot of great insight. I thought he came off as very naive and still kind of, I don't know if he, the man took too many chair shots or what, man. But he kind of just seemed like way too in on believing the UWF could have been something after all these years. And as you mentioned, the way he talks in his books about the business, you would think he knew he would know a lot better. So it comes off really odd to me. I don't know. Yeah, it did. And I'm a little bit concerned about next week as well, because talking about the Road Warriors 
that is 20 years. That's going to be really hard to cover in 20 in 45 minutes. So I'm a little bit concerned about next week as well, especially if animal is heavily involved because animal is a known bullshitter. And I am a, I'm a little concerned about next week's episode. Well, not only is he a known bullshitter, he's also a known asshole. So I was like, that's another reason I'm not super right. looking forward how, to it. How could I forget? How can I forget the asshole part? Can never forget that animal, animals an asshole. I mean, there's just so much to cover because the Road Warriors' career. I mean, there's so much to talk about. They had runs in the three major companies. They had a very bad fall, but they have also had careers in Japan. I mean, they were doing WWE appearances in 2003, so. It's going to be a really hard, it's going to be really hard to cover all of that. Yeah, I would imagine that what it's going to be is they're kind of going to, I think that they're going to kind of hit the career highlights early and then focus on the Hawk and stuff and the fall of the team. Um, Hopefully, because that's, honestly, that's kind of why they're doing it on Dark Side of the Ring, because just on its own, the Road Warriors is not like a dark topic. It's the fact that they, you know, the way Hawk died and the way he cost them money and imploded the team and all of his demons and all that stuff. That is the juicy goodness for a documentary like this, to put it crassly. All, Hawk also seems like an asshole as well. Yes. Not speaking ill of the dead, but he seems like an asshole based on any shoot interview I've ever seen with Hawk. This is true. I would agree with that. So, yeah, the Road Warriors are next week, and then there's one more episode left, and that is Owen Hart. Which is going to be, that's going to be a tough one. It is. It's definitely going to be. I think it's going to echo a lot of what we talked about with the Chris Benoit episodes. And I, I, I just hope that they are, I hope they get the tone right, because they did not get the tone right of this one. And with the Owen Hart one, you've got to be very, very careful. Well, I think they're probably going to be very careful considering the fact that they had Martha on board for it, which is like the first time she's ever been involved with anything like this and actually talking about it. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm pretty sure she had some control yeah. over it and stuff like that. But I mean, that, that that doesn't mean it's going to be good, though. I mean, we'll find out. But um, it's going to be interesting. And um, I'm wondering. And again, I'm not I don't want to make it sound like she wouldn't be justified. I'm wondering how she's going to come off in this. I'm wondering if it's going to be a lot of loving remembrance for her husband. I miss him. He was taken from me and my children. Or if it's going to be like we've seen with a lot of other people on certain subjects, just a big fuck WWE fest. And again, I'm not saying she's not justified. I'm just curious how she's going to come off town wise. Well, yeah. And she may have done all of that, but it's how it's how she gets portrayed in the 45 minutes, like what are the editors and the directors, what are they going to choose to put in? I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, I, I don't think that they're going to give Martha creative control. I think they're going to try to be respectful, but I think it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see what, what we get. Are we going to get kind of both? Are we going to get more, one more than the other? So that is definitely something that I'll be paying very close attention to. And again, you know what, man? If she goes on national TV and hate fucks WWE for an hour, I'm not going to blame her. No, I mean, <laughs> at this point, Vince McMahon, 
after everything, just for this year alone, not even for the Owen Hart stuff, which is morally repugnant on its own, for this year alone, drag him all you want. Yeah. He, he's had a hell of a year on Dark Side alone. <laughs> I mean, just on Dark Side alone, but I mean, the idea that he fires so much, or furloughs and fired so much of his staff, even though they're going to make record profits. I mean, and the Howard Finkel stories that have been coming out. I mean, it's it's morally repugnant. That's the best way I can put it. It really is. So again, next week will be the Road Warriors final week is Owen Hart. Jerome, before we go, um, shout out your podcasting endeavors so the folks can go listen. Uh, so you can go ahead and listen to the most recent episode of Real Bad, a Breaking Bad podcast. Kevin Ford and I discuss season four of that television show. And we are in our last three episodes of superhero pantheon, where we will be discussing the MCU movies, the following captain Marvel, Spider-Man far from home. And then our three hour magnum opus podcast, where we discuss Avengers Endgame, and we reveal our final master list where we, the four of us ranked uh, the MCU from number 23 through number one. So you can all look forward to that, and you can do that at EnterTheRealWorld.com or follow on Twitter at The Real World. And you can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. Fantastic, Jerome. Thank you for your time, as always. That is going to wrap us up for tonight's show. This has been the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Stay safe, everybody, and happy wrestling.